Okay, salam alaikum, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome everybody to another amazing Saturday session, inshallah. Um, I wanted to start with just some good news. Um, I want to highlight um, some of our superstars here. Um, I, it, you know, we, we try to do um, a lot of new things here, which shouldn't really be new, but um, you know, we try to like challenge the status quo um, <clears throat> and elevate knowledge and critical thinking, as we say on our website. We also highlight, uh, we have some new changes to our website, so check it out, it's pretty cool. Um, but you know, one of the things that we're always sort of um, fighting the tide against is um, you know, the, the quality of the knowledge that is put out there. You go to the mosque and you um, recognize that most of your khutbahs, most of your um, you know, lectures or talks or things are really put together by people who are not scholars. And it's frustrating. Um, you know, we've definitely talked about that a lot here. Um, but you, know, you get the sense that um, Islam as a hobby is perfectly fine um, and that it's, it's okay if it's a dentist or an engineer or a medical doctor who's teaching you your faith. Um, and I think that we've seen here the, the vast difference in quality when you actually are lear learning your faith through a scholar. Um, but it, it has become so um, rampant that you almost, if you are actually um, an Islamic scholar and pursuing this field, you are a rarity. I mean, I think people really don't understand why you would dedicate your life to studying Islamic studies or Islamic law or something like that. Um, because, you know, also clearly, if you look in the academic um, field, uh, most of the people who fill positions um, of, you know, uh, authority when it comes to Islam and Islamic studies and Islamic law are, for the most part, not Muslim which is shocking because if you are looking at um, you know, a similar situation, whether it's Buddhist studies, Chinese studies, you know, Jewish studies, Hindu studies, you would not find people who are outside of the faith teaching that particular topic. But when it comes to Islam, that is certainly not the case. So you know, for us, um, you know, obviously Dr. Abul Fadl is in a you know, category um, you know, by himself. He is a stellar scholar in the secular world. Um, and also in, in the field of, of Islam among Muslims. But for young scholars, um, this is a big challenge. Um, it's a challenge with their families because oftentimes even their families don't appreciate the sacrifice and the hard work that goes in. And then when they have um, some accomplishments, um, it's, you know, it's a very lonely path. I think people don't truly appreciate. So I wanna take this moment to um, honor and highlight and, and congratulate our stellar scholars, young scholars who are Publish now they have some new publications coming coming out. This is a big deal. It's a lot of work. It's something that you know um, establishes you know you as as a young scholar. And you know we know that this is a very very hard road um, for people in this field. So at a minimum, um, I want to honor. Um, we just got some good news. Um, our our Dr. Joseph Linhoff, who you've now seen in our um, introduction, has a new article that um, was just accepted. It's called A Modern Day Dahri. Did I say that right? Modern Day Dahri, The Legal Thought of Muhammad Asad, and it's going to be published in the Muslim World Journal. So that was just accepted. Mabruk, excellent job. Yay. Um, and then um, our other young scholar who is published here is Rami Kuja, who's getting his PhD at Princeton. And so he had um, an article that came out, Islamic Legal Reform or Reformation, the Transmutations of Critique and Rumi Ahmed's Sharia Compliant, a User Guide to Hacking Islamic Law. Thank you for writing that, because that book is really, um, if I could complain just a little bit, <laughs> the book is called 
called Sharia Compliant, um, A User's Guide to Hacking Islamic Law. And um, it's you know one of these books that comes out that just really requires um, someone to come in and critique it and put it in its place. And so I think Rami did that. And you know it's hard because we, we deal in this field um, you know with Sharia, Islamic law, there's just so much misconception. People can say anything they want and the vast majority of people have no idea whether it's authentic or not. Um, and so it's hard to find um, someone who has not just the intelligence and the training to answer it, but also the bravery. Because when you stand up and you critique something, you're not making friends. And especially when the people who are publishing um, these types of books have um, a lot of support. Um, it's hard when you come in as the lone voice critiquing something because you know that the quality is just not there. So um, it's, you know, alhamdulillah. Um, Rami also has a couple of other forthcoming um, articles. One is called Islamic Law and Ethics in Bloomsbury Sourcebook for Islamic Ethics. And then also forthcoming, Rights in Islamic Law in the Rutledge Handbook of Islamic Ethics. So um, Mabruk, both of our superstars, thank you. Um, and uh, actually you did also a review of the Islamic, the Rutledge book for Islamic Law too. So, um, so you just, so you don't even, you can't even keep track of all the things you're publishing, it's like amazing. So anyway, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Um, so that's, you know, um, and, and again, just to underscore the importance of um, you know really um, supporting our our young scholars, um, especially through like the project here, um, you know they're they're working hard on Project Illumin, but also on their own work, and so um, it takes a lot of dedication um, to be able to produce um, in the midst of you know a lot of other things happening in your life. So, alhamdulillah. Um, also, I just wanted to share. This is shifting gears a little bit. Um, if you guys watched um, the introduction from our last um, halakha with our dear friend Elaine, um, it was a really, really touching introduction. And um, for those who did, who weren't here, this was one of our, our family friends who has known us um, since the 90s and was an, attending um, our early halakhas back in 1996. And she um, came up and, and gave a really touching introduction about um, you know her life and how how um, those halakhas um, you know how the trajectory of this knowledge has affected her life and how um, Project Illumin has meant so much in, um, in all of the things that have happened. And so I, I really recommend you um, watch it if you haven't already. But what I wanted to share is um, someone had commented um, in reaction to that, um, to watching that. And it was really touching and I, I just thought I would share it in comments. Um, because Elaine was, um, she's a convert um, and has been on this journey uh, for 30 years. So it took her four years to take Shahada. Um, so she's been a convert officially for 26 years, but she was engaged with Islam for 30. Um, and so this is someone who, um, who wrote. So it says, um, I cry at this video. I'm grateful, alhamdulillah. I became a Muslim when I was 15 and now 49. It's a long, long story. And to sum it up, like others, I just feel a distance between the Islam in my heart and living Islam in a daily basis. It truly is like holding a hot coal. I feel stuck and sad and isolated, like a person on an island by herself. Muslim husbands, community sisters, all failed. That's quite a statement, and surely there were a few who were different. I'm sorry, I know this is jumbled, I'm emotionally exhausted. I see an Islam that I can never seem to grasp, and when I do, I have no community support. It's a very, very lonely place to be. I don't know how to bridge the gap. And as I reflect, maybe it's really after working on my relationship with Allah, doing and being the best person I can be and accepting what is. 
I'm so grateful to Allah in regards to the work you're doing. Allah keep you and your family shaykh in blessings, remembrance, and gratitude. Ameen. So I think, um, if I'm not mistaken, this person is clear around the world. And so I, I think one of the things that I'm always um, struck by and touched by is all of the different places around the planet where people will, will find us and write and they feel alone and they're so gratified to find someone who is actually speaking in a way in which they can relate. And my heart really especially goes out to converts because I know like what a lonely path it is. But it's also lonely for people who are, are just thoughtful and who are not necessarily con converting but they just have not found um, a Muslim community um, that they feel that they can call home. And so I'm always so happy, like when I shared this with the Sheikh, and Sheikh was like, that's really sad. And, and you know, he, I was joking, he's half empty and I'm half full. I was like, no, this was really happy because she found us, you know? And it's like one thing when you feel alone and you have nowhere to turn. And it's another thing when you feel alone, but then you've actually found someone where you feel at least you, you can share a common language, a common sentiment, a common passion. Um, and so, I mean, the only thing that I, I mean, I, I thank you for writing if you're watching this, um, and I just want to reach out to everyone else around the world who um, maybe feels alone and maybe feels like Islam really hasn't done very much for them um, in terms of what the community has had to offer. But I think what, um, what we try to teach here is that, you know, especially through, through this project, through Project Illumin, that it comes down to really an intuitive faith, um, a faith that is not about law or you know figuring out um, all the little technicalities. I mean, I think it's really you know rubbish when people think that oh somehow you can feel closer to your faith by understanding you know what this rule or that rule is supposed to be. I mean, we all know that that does nothing for you, but um, you know, and and how can you reconnect with the the Quran? when you don't really know like how to reach it. You read it, it doesn't touch your heart, you don't really quite understand it. The way people talk about it is something that you can't really, really relate to. And that's why I feel like, again, you know, what we're doing here is so special because when, you know, when Sheikh unpacks the meaning of this, um, of the surahs, you, you understand, you feel it in your heart, there's a visceral reaction. And, you know, like I've said many times, I don't even bother reading the English translation to prepare for these sessions because even after we go through an entire halakha, I go back and look at the English translation and I feel like, okay, I, that was very different than what I just learned. Um, and even like when I go back, you know, if, if people have not, um, you know, uh, subscribed to the, the weekly email that, that we send out here, um, I try to summarize like the, the surahs that we've covered. And uh, this last week, I just uh, sent out a summary of Surah Kaf. And, you know, like I hadn't looked at that surah for, for weeks because we did back in July, but returning to it and really like trying to even engage it and remember it and like recognize how incredibly touching and, you know, and deep and meaningful it is. And then to be able to like summarize it, it's like you, you just, you get blown away that, okay, this is something really special that you just can't find anywhere else. And, and it makes you feel connected to, to God, to your faith, and um, to other people who feel passionate about it. So um, to everyone who feels alone, don't feel alone because we're, we're in it together and we're learning together and we're finding and rediscovering um, you know, God's words, which were so beautiful and, um, 
as we've said before, you know, it, for early Muslims, they, they took this, this message and they were willing to sacrifice everything to preserve it and everything to, to fight for it. And I feel like we're just tasting that. And it's such a blessing um, and, and such an honor to be here to receive this, this knowledge. So thank you so much. Um, I just feel like I always have to say thank you and just be, you know, express my gratitude because it's, it's truly just out of this world. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to another amazing um, session on Surah Al-Rum. So, inshallah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Subhanallah al-Azim. Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه وتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني أفقه قولي يا رب العالمين سورة الروم أو السورة دائما فرست سورة الروم is um, an unusual surah because it mentions a historical event at the very beginning of the surah. Therefore, situating itself historically. Um, and that's uncommon in the Quran. The, the Quran, especially the, the Meccan Quran, the Quran in the Meccan period, uh, does not mention contemporaneous events and often uh, we have reports about when a surah was revealed from other sources that tell so but surah al-rum but the mention of the quran of the historical event is to the defeat of the sassanids the persians uh, sorry to the victory of the sassanids the of the Persians over the Byzantines in a battle. And it simply says that the Persians have beat the Byzantines, but in a few years, the Buddha Isinin, and we'll talk about that in a second, in a few years, the Byzantines will beat the Persians. And so this, as we'll see, turns, turns out to be important in trying to understand when Surat al-Rum was revealed and uh, placing it in its proper historical progression. Now, we have an abundance of reports that tell us, uh, tell us that Surat al-Rum was revealed after Surat al-Inshaqaq. And all the reports say that it was revealed in Mecca and that all the reports say it was after the Isra. So that we know. But if, we, if Surat al-Rum was revealed after Surat al-Inshaqaq, so that would also mean that it was revealed, um, or likely to have been revealed after Surat al-Mulk, al-Haqqa, al-Ma'arij, al, 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 al 
all sorts that we've covered. And that would also mean then that Surah Al-Rum was revealed at the very end of the Meccan period. So among the last source to be revealed in Mecca. However, at the same time that we have these reports that allow us to say we suspect that this is among the last source to be revealed in Mecca, we have other reports that claim that Surat Rum was revealed around much earlier. Some reports say that it was even revealed uh, in the third year of Hijra, which is not likely for many different reasons. But we also have reports that say that it was revealed in the seventh year of Hijra. And if so, then we can't really say it was revealed after Surah Al-Inshikaq. Now, does it matter? Does it matter if we know whether it was revealed towards the mid-Meccan period or the end of the Meccan period? It matters in a historical sense but not as much in terms of understanding what Surat al-Rum is doing. Because as you notice in the beginning of Surat al-Rum, where it tells us that the Byzantines have been defeated in a land nearby, fi al-Ard, fi al-Ard, which means in a, in a close land in a land that is close. Um, and yet after their defeat, they will be, they will prevail, which means in a few years. And then it says that and on that day, the believers shall rejoice. And it's very interesting because when it says on that day the believers shall rejoice, rejoice about what? The Persians are fighting the Byzantians and the Byzantians will eventually defeat the Persians and the there's that question of, well, why are the believers going to rejoice uh, when it is a war between two empires that have been fighting each other for a rather very long time? And there are theological implications to this that we'll talk about um, to see you know, the rather interesting way that the Quranic text interacts with the development of theology, the development of law. But first, to, to get our bearings a bit, we know that the Hijra takes place in the year 622 AD. 
And we also know that Persians, Kisrostani or um, the, um, um, I forgot what the, the English word for Kisra. The, uh, Khosra. Huh? Khosra. Oh, Khosra. Khosra II, um, who eventually will end up being assassinated by his son, by the way, one of his sons. But Khosra II has a, 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 a good run against the Byzantine Empire and around 614, 613, 614, so a few years before the Hijra, uh, the Persians are able to invade Byzantine territory and um, march all the way to Damascus and Jerusalem capturing Damascus and capturing Jerusalem around 614. And they're even able to invade Egypt in 618 and um, win a major battle. And at least for nominally, for a period of time, control Egypt before the Byzantines um, oust them from Egypt again. So this is 618. But most Islamic sources say that the battle that the Quran refers to is a showdown between the Byzantines and Persians in uh, a a place known as Azru'at. Azru'at is today's Dara in Syria, the city of Dara. And the Persians soundly defeat the Byzantines in the Battle of Azru'at or the battle around today's Dara. And if so, if this is the battle that uh, the, that the Quran comments on, then it is a battle that takes place around three years before the Hijra. And when the Quran predicts that the Byzantines will have the upper hand, and it says for Sinin in a few years, well, we know that the tide turns around in favor of the Byzantines as early as 622. The, the uh, Persians attempt to lay siege to Constantinople. That siege ends, is unsuccessful and it actually goes quite badly for the Persians. And the Byzantines are able to get themselves together on a counter-offensive. And after 622, which happens to be the year of the Hijra, the tide turns in favor of the Byzantines over the Persians, the, or the Sassanids. A clear victory, a clear victory 
um, for the Byzantians over the Sassanids doesn't take place until 627. So take a step back and most, a lot of Islamic sources say that when the, the Sassanids were defeating the Byzantians, that the people of Quraysh were taunting Muslims that your brethren are being defeated and that the Sassanids, who are polytheists like us, not believers in a single God, are beating your brethren, who in this case are Christian, and, uh, and people, and what you consider as Muslims, people of the book, and that they were gloating about the victory of the Sassanids over the Byzantines. And according to these historical sources that Muslims were disappointed that the Sassanids were beating the Byzantians because of the fact that the Byzantians were Christians and people of the book. And in this case, the explanation goes that when the Byzantians defeat the Sassanids, when eventually the, the, the tide will turn, Muslims will rejoice because they will be happy that the Byzantians, who are people of the book, have are victorious over uh, the Sassanids, who are polytheists. Also, that explanation is packaged nicely and cleanly because it, con it, it, it has a sharp contrast between polytheists, in this case, Sassanids, and people of the book, in this case, the Byzantians, and Muslims who would prefer the people of the book over the Byzantians, the people of the book over the polytheists. It, it's a clean explanation, and it is, consistent with what a theological order of preference, right? That you prefer Muslims over people of the book, you prefer people of the book over polytheists, and so on. And there's even a story that goes along with this, which probably has a, a certain degree of historical truth, that there's a, a fellow called Ubay ibn Abdullah, a, um, a, a Meccan among the unbelievers of Mecca, who gloats, who uh, gloats about the victory of the Sassanids over the Byzantians, and when Surat al-Rum is revealed, saying that the Byzantians will have the upper hand eventually. Ubay bin Abdullah meets Abu Bakr and tells him, what, what's this nonsense? Your Quran says that the Byzantines are going to have the upper hand. This is impossible. Uh, 
it's clear that the Byzantines, because the Byzantines at this point, their, their empire was falling apart because of internal feuding and internal fighting, uh, that will not happen. And then Abu Bakr and this fellow Ubay agree on a bet. Abu Bakr bets that the Quran's prediction is going to come true and Ubay bets against that. Um, and when the victory doesn't occur for in three years, Ubay comes and tells Abu Bakr, you've lost the bet, it's time to pay up. And Abu Bakr uh, says, no, Bidaisanin means from three to nine years. Some reports say that it is Abu Bakr goes to the Prophet and says, you know, have I lost the bet? And the Prophet says, well, no, Bidaisanin means three to nine years. So tell Ubay, wait until the nine years are over. And Ubay agrees to this, and ultimately the prediction comes true, and it is Abu Bakr that wins the bet. And after winning the bet, the, he takes the money that he won to the Prophet, and the Prophet says that this is suht, or this is uh, unlawful money, so donate it. And of course, you know, Islamic sources say, well, this was before the prohibition of gambling, that the prohibition of gambling doesn't occur until Medina. And it even enters in jurisprudential debates. So in the Hanafi school, you can, if you are in non-Muslim territory, you can engage in certain contracts that would be void in Muslim lands, including a contract that involves a degree of gambling. According to, and the Hanafi school relies on this, this, this narrative, among the things that it relies on. It cites to the precedent of the bet between Ubay and Abu Bakr, and to the point that Sharia, or certain aspects of Sharia, do not apply in non-Muslim territory. Now, I have a considerable amount of skepticism about the traditional narrative that the that what Muslims will rejoice about is that the Byzantines defeat the Sassanids. And I have a considerable amount of skepticism because there were no reason for Muslims who are in Mecca at the time to feel to side with a, a dominant Christian empire over the Sassanids. Both the Sassanids and the Byzantines had relationships with certain Arab tribes. But Mecca had resisted the influence of both the Sassanids and the Byzantines for a long time, re rejecting or refusing to fall under the tutelage of either of these empires. 
And that type of dichotomy between the Sassanids as polytheists and the Byzantines as people of the book is a legal categorization that I think develops much later. And so I'm very skeptical about the reports that say that what Muslims are happy about is that Christians beat Sassanids because Sassanids were polytheists. In my reading of the sources, I believe that Muslims saw both sides, the Sassanids and the Byzantines, as equally alien and equally foreign and equally oppressive. And in fact, we know that in a few years, the major foe to Muslims will be the Byzantines and not the Sassanids. The Sassanid Empire will crumble, will fold very quickly, while the Byzantine Empire will have a long history of um, complex history with Muslims that is peppered with conflict and, and sometimes resolution and so on and so forth. So what is it that Muslims then are supposed to rejoice about? So let's go back. Surah al-Rum starts with Alif Lam Mim, therefore alerting us if when we said this before that the sur that start with these letters Alif Lam Ra or Alif Lam Mim, in my view, are sur that are the core and the heart of the Quranic message, like what I've called foundational sur. And we've talked about what these letters could possibly mean in the past, but I, the, the important thing is that they signify that these are suar that are foundational, suar that lay the gestalt of the Quranic message, if you will. Then second, it, the Quran does comment about a battle won by the Sassanids and predicts that the tide will turn, which as it turns out is a, a prediction that was right on. In fact, the, it's not that the Sassanids will lose one battle before the Byzantines, but will lose a series of battles will turn out to be quite disastrous for the Sassanid Empire. And eventually will lead to the assassination of Khusra, Khusro the second uh, by one of his, uh, one of his sons. And that will also then have disastrous consequences for the Sassanid Empire. So the Quranic prediction was right on. But we come back to this issue of, and, um, and when the Quran says, and when this happens, Muslims will rejoice. So what was happening in Muslim life 
when in fact the Byzantines defeat the Sassanids. Well, if you say that because the first defeat take is actually the, the first time that the Byzantines defeat the Sassanids after this revelation is in 622, then you would say that This is the year, not just of Israel, but the year of the Battle of Badr. If, however, you say that the defeat that Muslims will rejoice about doesn't take place until 627, then that's the year of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Now, in both cases, whether, so if it's 622, the year of the Battle of Badr, that means by definition that Surah Al-Rum must have been an early revelation. If it is the Treaty of Qudaybiyah, i.e. 627, then that would necessarily mean a room, Surah al room was a later revelation. And that's what I believe is the truth, is that indeed it is a later revelation, and that the prediction that it is articulating is not the beginning of the first battle to be won by the Byzantines against the Sassanids, but 627, where you see a complete collapse of the Sassanid defenses against the Byzantines. Now, what is it that Muslims are rejoicing? I think the Quran was doing a double prediction. It was predicting that the Byzantines will defeat the Sassanids, but it will also predicting that by that time, Muslims will be clearly victorious over the Meccans. And that is the reason for the statement, Muslims will rejoice. And it would make sense because they're rejoicing, but not over the fact that an empire beat another, because both empires will are foes, are enemies, as far as Muslims are concerned. But, it, and from if you think about it from that perspective, it is truly remarkable, because the idea that not just a prediction that the Byzantines will defeat the Sassanids is, is an amazing prediction, but that in fact will, Muslims will be at a place where they can rejoice about their victories over the Meccans is also something that was not foreseeable at the time that Surah Al-Rum is revealed. Okay. Now, so, 
if this, in fact, if Surah Al-Rum is a late Meccan revelation, as I believe it is, and it comes at this point shortly before the Hijrah, and this would be after the message delivered in Surah Yunus, Surah Hud, Surah Yusuf, Surah Al-An'am. So what is the intervention that Surah Arum making? And that then becomes a question. What is it saying to Muslims? that will affect their life at this point. Okay. So, we notice that after the ayat, which are up to verse 4, that are predictive ayat, predictive verses, we come to the next Aya, Yansurullah, sorry, Yansurullah, Yansurullah, Yasha, Wahu Azizur Rahim. That matters of victory and defeat are up to Allah. Wa'ad Allah, La Yukhlufullah, Wa'ada. ولكن أكثر الناس لا يعلمون. Now, this is, if you will, a reminder of something of a, of a critical message as Muslims. Although it tells Muslims that you will, in fact, that the Sassanids will, will be defeated, you Muslims will feel victorious. In fact, you will rejoice with, about Allah's victory because it says explicitly that the reason you will rejoice is because of Allah's victory. that it comes back and reminds Muslims that these affairs, if you will, these international, larger-than-life affairs, are God and gods alone. That ultimately, there are empires that will rise and empires that will fall. You yourself will be victorious or not victorious. There is your, your, your moral attitude towards these events is to understand that this universe has a master who runs it. And that master decides these issues. And there is a point in which you say, it is all in Allah's hands. 
وهو العزيز الرحيم that although Allah reminds Muslims that Allah will make them victorious and that Allah will aid them with victory, it is critical to understand that the very nature of Allah, even when Allah talks about victory and defeat, is rahmah is mercy. And as Muslim theologians have written, that Rahmatullah Tashmal Muslim wal Kafir, that Allah's mercy extends both to Muslim and non-Muslims, or Muslim believer and non-believer. And as we already learned in the Quranic revelation, that Allah's justice can give victory to the non-believer over the believer. If the non-believer deserves the victory because they are the just party. But here the coupling of the reminder of Allah's victory coupled with a reminder of that always remember that Allah's mercy extends to all. Okay. And that this is Allah Wa'adullah, which the study Quran, of course, translates as a promise of God. It is, Wa'adullah, it, it's like, um, it's a stronger word than, than promise. Uh, like, the, like saying the covenant of God. This is the, the understanding that the world, the affairs of the world are run by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that Allah does not break or that that Allah's covenant is cannot be broken. Allah it's like saying Allah's will cannot be defeated. Okay, except that most people do not know which we encountered again that constant reminder that in fact most people will not know what the Quran teaches and will not believe in what the Quran teaches. Okay. So what is it then that most people know? يَعْلَمُونَ ظَاهِرًا مِنَ الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا وَهُمْ عَنِ الْآخِرَةِ هُمْ غَافِلُونَ Now, that ayah is, is remarkable if you ponder it. يَعْلَمُونَ ظَاهِرًا مِنَ الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا What they are engaged in is not even the truth about or what they know is not even the truth about earthly life but Zahiran is like what you say what appears on the surface of earthly life 
what their senses perceive and engage. It's like saying what they know is their material existence. It reminds me a lot of existential philosophy. We say, it's like saying, they are, most people are in fact existentialists. They know only what they can touch and feel or hear and see. But the phrase itself is that earthly life is what is involved in earthly life is far more than simple existentialism. Because what is weaved and embedded in earthly life is wa'adullah, is Allah's covenant and will. Most people live in life oblivious to Allah's will. And we'll see why this is so important, because it will take us back to a very important idea that we encountered in Surah Al-An'am. The law of nature, or natural law. But we'll see how in Surah Al-Rum, we move further in our discourse about the law of nature or natural law. So most people, in fact, comprehend nothing beyond their existentialism. And even more, when it comes then to the hereafter, they're completely oblivious. So the Quran in one verse layered two issues. One is your knowledge and your engagement with the material world. And the second issue is the extent to which you are conscious of the next world. Okay. Then it starts, it takes us to What will, to skip ahead a little bit, what will be the lines of inquiry into both something about this world beyond existentialism and a deeper knowledge of existence, which is the natural order that Allah decreed in the world, what we, what we might call naturalism, while at the same time tying in, and this is, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, just to tell you where we're going, while at the same time tying in the knowledge of the natural order or naturalism to the hereafter and awareness of the hereafter. Okay. So first it starts out, أَوَلَمْ يَتَفَكَّرُوا فِي أَنفُسِهِمْ مَا خَلَقَ اللَّهُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَمَا بَيْنَهُمَا إِلَّا بِالْحَقِّ وَأَجَلٍ مُسَمَّةٍ وَإِنَّ كَثِيرًا مِنَ النَّاسِ بِلِقَاءِ رَبِّهِمْ لَكَافِرُونَ 
So first, it invites you to the most natural inquiry of all. Haven't they, haven't human beings contemplated what is, and note here, أَوَلَمْ يَتَفَكَّرُوا فِي أَنفُسِهِمْ فِي أَنفُسِهِمْ Haven't they reflected about themselves and haven't they reflected in themselves? So, فِي أَنفُسِهِمْ It's like saying, think about your existence. If you came from nowhere and you're going to nowhere, you are nothing. Then it's like you are a coincidence, a, 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 as coincidental as a bubble that comes to the surface and pops. If it is so coincidental, then it is very difficult to ground yourself in meaning. And it is very difficult for to ground yourself in meaning vis-a-vis -vis yourself and vis-a-vis -vis others. So if I exterminate myself, well, after all, there is no meaning. There's no meaning to my coming, there's no meaning to my leaving. So ultimately, there is no meaning to my extermination of the self. But even more dangerous, in my view, is the thought of exterminating others. If there's no meaning to my coming and no meaning to my leaving, and there is no meaning to the coming of others and no meaning to the leaving of others, then it is very easy to say, well, if I can exterminate others and not suffer consequences that affect my existence, why not? You know, it's like these reports that I was talking about on the khutbah. You know, a pilot flying a plane gets the orders, sees the wedding, fire a missile into the wedding, kill everyone. With a button, it's done. Or a funeral, with a button, it's done. It's all bodies on a screen, as far as this pilot is concerned. And as far as those who give the command, you know, they could look at, maybe if someone films the aftermath, they could look at it, or if no one films the aftermath, or even if someone feels the aftermath, they could just choose to ignore it. They don't have to look at, you know, the torn up bodies and all of that and say, well, you know, tough luck. I was born with, with the means to do it. You were born in a situation where you have to suffer my will. And that's the beginning and that's the end. Fundamentally existentialist in every sense of the word. But, so it tells you, reflect 
about yourself and reflect in yourself. The in yourself will become, become very important in a second. But about yourself, because then, ما خلق الله السماوات والأرض وما بينهما إلا بالحق وأجل مسمى. This creation is purposeful. And when the expression that Allah created the heavens and earth إلا بالحق except per truth. And of course, you say per the truth of what? Or, to say, or you can even, you can even read it as except rightfully. Well, in this context, when you say then the only meaning, the only source of meaning possible for creation is that that is given by the Creator. So, if the Creator says this is purposeful and your existence is meaningful, then it is because that is the only source of meaning. And that none of this is happenstance and none of this is coincidental. Except that so many people refuse to believe that ultimately they are heading to meeting with their Lord. So it's like from the beginning, what is the meaning of my existence? Well, the meaning of your existence is that the maker, the one who actually invented you in the first place, like, um, let's say, you know, if you imagine if you create a speaking robot and the, the robot says, what is the meaning of the existence? Well, the meaning of existence is that your creator will, you are ultimately destined to meet your creator. Because your creator wants to receive you and wants to see how you did after you've been created, after you've been given consciousness. But if you say, but I don't want to meet that creator, I don't believe I'm going to meet that creator, then you face a true challenge. If you don't want to meet the Creator, or you don't believe in meeting the Creator, then what is your source of meaning? So, of course, you know, human beings are very creative, and human beings, you know, could start saying, I believe in, effectively, another word for God, or, fairy tales or some type of hypothetical social whatever social agreement that took place in no place in history or so the various cartwheels that human beings do 
to try to find meaning once they've excluded the only possible source of meaning. Okay. But then it first before saying anything about the hereafter, it develops the idea that your engagement with your world can never ignore, or you cannot afford to ignore seeing Allah's hand and Allah's will in your created world. So, أَفَلَمْ يَسِيرُوا فِي الْأَرْضِ فَيَنْظُرُوا كَيْفَ كَانَ عَاقِبَةُ الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِهِمْ كانوا أشد منهم قوة وأثاروا الأرض وعمروها أكثر مما عمروها وجاءتهم رسلهم بالبينات فما كان الله ليظلمهم ولكن كانوا أنفسهم يظلمون ثم كان عاقبة الذين أساءوا السوء أن كذبوا بآيات الله وكانوا بها يستهزئون Okay. So, Allah, after inviting you to look into yourself, takes you to a very important concept and that expression, Amaruha that look at previous nations, the story of nations, exactly nations like the Sassanids and the Byzantines. And of course, at the time this is revealed, no one could have imagined that the Sassanids and the Byzantines will disappear. Not in a hundred years, not in hundreds of years, it was just not conceivable. After all, it wasn't that long ago when the Sassanids executed the most powerful Arab chief, Al-Malik bin Nu'man, uh, the, the king known as bin Nu'man, he was a, the, one of the very few Arab kings at the time. Um, I mean, extremely powerful that they destroyed the entire kingdom of a Norman, a sort of a, a, a person that has gone in, in, in Arab legends as this heroic pre-Islamic figure. The Sassanids are so powerful that they impose their will all the way to Jerusalem and to Egypt. And the Byzantines are so powerful that when they go on their counter-offensive, they are able to turn the Sassanid Empire upside down and even cause the eventual assassination of the great ruler himself, Khusra II. At the time, so Surah Al-Rum starts with this, but then it tells you, reflect upon 
the constant story of nations. They civilized the earth, Amaruha. They, they, Amir uh, is to civilize something or to inhabit something and build it up. They were able to establish civilizations and the civilizations that they built were far more superior than anything that you've been able to build, to build. Now, the Quran, you, this is the only time in the Quran that it uses the word Amaruha. In Surah Hud, um, the Prophet Saleh tells his, his tribe, Thamud, He's talking to his tribe and he says, Allah created you and which means and Allah allowed you to inhabit this land. But here, the expression Amaruha civilized it, that people build civilizations and these civilizations thrive and they thrive and they thrive and they, what they build is far superior to anything that you've been able to build. But ultimately, it's a process of rising and falling. But then look at what it injects at this point. But the destruction of these civilizations were not because Allah committed an injustice against them, but because they've committed an injustice against themselves. Therefore, anchoring the idea that it is justice that builds a civilization and allows it to thrive, and it is injustice that will destroy a civilization and bring it down. You make either the heaven you live in or the hell that you're going to live in. Although not, you don't find it that often, unfortunately, in the tafsir, but in some of the philosophical works, you find a commentary that in fact, between the Sassanid Empire and the Byzantine Empire. If you take justice as the scale, the Byzantines, when they defeated the Sassanids, had a greater degree of justice and law and order and equity in their empire than the Sassanids did. At the last days of the Sassanid Empire, things reach cruelty and injustice reach unheard of levels. 
I mean, the, the, there are, there's just, the historical record is, is quite often shocking as what, what was even going on between the ruling elite in the Sassanid Empire. But ultimately, the Byzantine Empire itself was eventually corroded from the inside because of the accumulation of injustices within the Byzantine Empire. So there are some, at least that noted, that this discourse in Surah Al-Rum about justice can easily be related to the events that it predicts at the beginning. Okay. And after affirming that principle about justice, the next ayah takes you to those who received a message and yet refused to believe. But as Ibn Arabi points out, when it says, ثُمَّ كَانَ عَاقِبَةَ الَّذِينَ أَسَاءُوا السُّوءَ أَنْ كَذَّبُوا بِآيَاتِ اللَّهِ وَكَانُوا بِهَا يَسْتَهْزِئُونَ That what they reject is آيَاتِ اللَّهِ means the signs of Allah, not necessarily the prophets of Allah. So, what they reject is the way that Allah speaks to human beings. Allah speaks to human beings through the revealed text and through the created revelation, meaning through Quran al-Nasi wa Quran al-Kawni. The Quran al-Kawni is the Quran of nature, as we've said. And so ayatillah, that they've turned away from, in a word, again, natural, natural law, that they refuse to believe or they refuse to understand the natural messages or the natural order that Allah encodes in existence. Okay. And then, of course, the reminder, Allah is the originator of creation. And Allah is the exterminator of creation. And Allah is the one who will recreate creation. And that to Allah you shall return. So it's stating the, the sort of the the baseline truth. Okay. وَيَوْمَ تَقُومُ السَّاعَةُ يُبْلِسُ الْمُجْرِمُونَ that the يُبْلِسُ الْمُجْرِمُونَ that the the those the offenders are going to despair and be utterly defeated. This is ayah 
13 ولم يكن لهم شركاء ولم يكن لهم من شركائهم شفعاء وكانوا بشركائهم كافرين that, that the, the things that they relied on on earth and here again we hearken back to surah al-an'am the concept of shirk that shirk there's a shirk al-jali when you associate partners with allah in a explicit fashion and there is a shirk al-khafi or shirk al-batin when you associate partners of Allah in a non-explicit fashion meaning that you defer in your system of belief it is Allah is, is not the ultimate source of right and wrong but you defer to other venues of authority that you consider is equally authoritative or even quasi-authoritative, all of that are forms of shirk. Okay. So, then the reminder again about the fate of accountability and that accountability will end up with winners and will end up with losers. This is, of course, the brief, um, the brief mention of Jannah and Hellfire. This is up to verse 16. And then, فَسُبْحَانَ اللَّهِ حِينَ تُمْسُونَ وَحِينَ تُصْبِحُونَ وله الحمد في السماوات والأرض وعشيا حين تظهرون. This is now 17 and 18. So many Quranic commentators will point out that these ayat, فسبحان الله حين تمسون وحين تصبحون وله الحمد في السماوات والأرض وعشيا وحين تظهرون that it mentions the times of the five prayers. But I don't think that the point is necessarily the five prayers. Although a lot of, you know, so many commentators say that. But it is the attitude that Allah wants you to have towards your existence on earth. And what is the summary of the attitude? The summary of the attitude is subhanallah to recognize the centrality and the sovereignty of Allah as you wake up and as you sleep. So it's putting Allah center stage in your existence. It is every time you wake up, 
you say this is due to Allah's sovereignty. Subhanallah. And every time you turn in, you say this is due to Allah's sovereignty. Subhanallah. وَلَهُ الْحَمْدُ فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَعَشِيًّا وَحِينَ تُظِرُونَ And your gratitude to Allah uh, tracks the same cycle that وَعَشِيًّا وَحِينَ تُظِرُونَ Now normally they say, oh this means Aisha prayer or Dora prayer, but it's... No, عَشِيًّا is as you turn in وَحِينَ تُظِرُونَ as you rise up to meet your day. So the cycle is complete is that you are in a state of gratitude and a state of recognition of Allah's centrality to your existence and meaning. At every cycle every point of cycle in the day. And as part of the cycle, recognizing that يُخْرِجُ الْحَيَّ مِنَ الْمَيِّتِ وَيُخْرِجُ الْمَيِّتَ مِنَ الْحَيِّ وَيُحْيِي الْأَرْضَ بَعْدَ مَوْتِهَا وَكَذَلِكَ تُخْرَجُونَ That this is God with the laws of causality and materiality that you rely on in an existential fashion, well, these laws do not apply to the divine because the divine can produce life out of death and death out of life. And for that to happen, the known laws of causal materiality, you exit outside the laws of causation. The dead doesn't produce life. That's the, the, the first thing we know about the laws of causation on earth, the laws of biology, the laws of science on earth. But when you deal with the creator, the creator is not subject to the logic of existentialism and materiality. Okay. <clears throat> that, of course, the, this is a uh, 30, no, 20, 20. Again, the verse is so straightforward, so simple, but it's that the origin is, and by the way, in, in Sufi, especially Sufi literature, they, this, this is something, this is a metaphor that they write a lot about, that the building blocks of a human being come from something as um, as non as unglamorous as dust and the basic elements of the of what 
creates a human being. But the intishar, the actual life of human beings, is a mystery. If life itself, if you observe it, you see no signs that it is simply the product of the building blocks of the carbon, whatever, and whatever goes into what we are. You know, we're carbon-based and what goes, but once that life is taken away, you see the mystery gone and the quick, the quick deterioration into where we came from, the, 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 the decomposition. And if, you, if, you've, you know, if you've owned pets and you've had the displeasure of having pets pass away and you buried them, uh, you see the cycle and, and you reflect on it all the time. You know, with the pet, it, is a puppy alive? Their, you see their, their life, their feelings, their preferences, their tastes, their habits. And then when they pass away and you see the body decompose and you know that, no, this is not just dust. There was something magnanimous, something magical. In the, and this is why we say that in philosophy, the biggest question of philosophy is consciousness. Because there's no answer to it, whether medically, scientifically, or philosophically. Okay. Okay. Now, this is 21, and that among Allah's ayat, and again, remember, ayat is replaced for ayat, Allah's natural order. And right after Allah invites you to think about the fate of nations, and of course, when I go back and wrap up the surah, I'll, I'll connect all of this together, that... Allah invites you to reflect upon the fate of nations, nature, nations, to reflect upon the process of civilization and building and the process of deterioration, to reflect upon, to relate the process of building and, and civilization to not just nations, but to human beings themselves and the way human beings spring to life and are full of life and then go out as if the mystery itself has been pulled away. And the first thing that Allah then reminds you to reflect upon of Ayatullah after your actual existence is the beauty of Allah creating for human beings partners. 
We've encountered this in Surah Al-An'am, but here in Surah Al-Rum, it is developed further. Because in Surah Al-An'am, remember, it says Azwaj, and it was ambiguous whether it was referring to partners in life as in marriage. But in Surah Al-Rum, it becomes even more explicit and says, وَجَعَلَ بَيْنَكُمْ وَوَدَّةً وَرَحْمَةً إِنَّ فِي ذَلِكَ آيَاتٍ لِقَوْمٍ يَتَفَكَّرُونَ That in this is an ayah, in this is a clear sign to those who reflect that the expectation and indeed the natural order, what you innately know by nature, is that the partner you're with, what you want from them is mawadda, companionship, warahma, compassion and mercy. That even the most illiterate human being in the world if they end up with a partner who makes them feel lonely or who is not merciful or compassionate, they're unhappy. Even animals that Allah, if they were given the instinct of companionship, and if you watch them, some breeds of birds. You see this in a in a in a, in a remarkable in a, in a remarkable beautiful picture, mawadda and rahma. And this goes back to something that I was saying in Surah Al-An'am. Marriage, by the logic of Allah's nature what Allah coded into existence is not supposed to be about dominance, is not supposed to be about control, is not supposed to be about abuse, it's not supposed to be about power dynamics and power play. It is supposed to be simply about mawadda and rahma, Companionship, and the place where you feel mercy, the warmth of mercy and compassion, not cruelty. And this is why when the Prophet commented on this ayah, the Prophet says, the complete, the most, the best of you, or the most perfect among you, are those whose character is the best, whose akhlaq are the best, those who, whose ethics, their, their ethical character is the best. And the best among you are those who are best to their wives. So the Prophet ﷺ comments, on this verse by saying that it is, the, and remember, when you talk about character, you're talking about akhlaq, 
And when you talk and ethics, and when you talk about ethics, we are talking about what we've already discussed at length, the natural order of things. And so the natural order of things is that that your good ethical character comes out in your relationship if you're a man with your wife and if and I would and it's the same for if you're a, if you're a woman with your husband because it is against the natural law that it would not okay and then, after this ayah, Allah brings you to another ayah, which, again, for when you remember when Surah Al-Rum is revealed, and, and notice that the things that Surah Al-Rum are talking about seem to me to be too early to be mid-Mecca. This sounds like the themes of a late Meccan period, post an am surah, in fact. That Wamin Ayatihi Khalokat Samawati Wal Ard Wahtilafu Al Sinatukum Walwanukum Walwanikum Inna Fidalikal Ayatil Lil Alameen ومن آياته منامكم بالليل والنهار وابتغاؤكم من فضله إن في ذلك الآيات لقوم يسمعون. Okay, so among his ayahs is the great, uh, the great, well, I'm, I'm like blanking out on the word, uh, diversity in your languages and your races, your colors. Of course, we know that the Prophet ﷺ comments, or his famous hadith, that all people, all colors and all people, all languages are equal, like the, the teeth of a calm, except for their taqwa, meaning that what makes a human being more favored in the ethically is their their taqwa. But it is an ayah which means like all ayatullah that is something to celebrate, not something to think is unnatural. So and this is in in my view one of the reasons that Muslims, unlike for instance, Spanish colonialism, which is well-known Spanish school of international law, which perceived racial diversity as a product of the sin of um, what they used to call the sin of um, the descendants of Ham, right? That that Ham, one of the descendants of uh, Nuh commits a sin and this is what the Bible says and then uh, God punishes Ham with blackness as, and it's a, uh, as punishment and that became a huge element in Christian theology 
and especially in Spanish Catholicism and Spanish colonialism. And so Spanish, the Spanish colonialism would destroy all native languages and all native cultures as it tried to rid people of the product of their sin, which ironically, <laughs> anyone that didn't speak the language they spoke, although they didn't consider English a product of sin, but they considered all native, other native languages, which they could thought of as non-Christian languages, to be a product of sin, and while they couldn't do anything about the race of people, they, that, that view that there are races inferior because of their sin was deeply embedded in the institutions of slavery as well. The Quran discourse on ayat as language, the diversity in languages and diversity in races being among the signs of Allah meaning the glories of Allah had the, exactly the opposite effect. You couldn't extinguish a language because the, the Quran is telling you this, the fact that this is a, a different language is a gift from Allah. And you couldn't extinguish a race because, and that's why slavery was not racially based in the Muslim world. Um, because again, different colors is supposed to be among the, of course, later Muslim generations, in my view, learned from colonialism to be racist against blacks. And although there are, of course, you know, Orientalists who are trying to prove that the issue of black racism was pre-colonialism, but I think that, that's a, that takes us, anyway. Okay. And the fact that that cycle, the, that you live in a cycle where part of the engagement of life is that you're not constantly, and one of the, in, in Arabi says about the area, uh, this is 23, that among Allah's signs is that you, you sleep at night. Is, Ibn Arabi says that this means that it is the right to rest is among, is an ethical right decreed. So if failure to allow people to rest uh, Ibn Arabi says adequately ref, rest, whatever adequately means. Adequately rest is an ethical failure. Now, of course, we know that there are hadiths from the Prophet that, that says, you know, you can't exhaust a, you're an employee, you can't exhaust a worker, that if you, if you give them more than they can bear, then Allah holds you responsible. But the, the idea that in sleep, is an ayah, is one of Allah's signs, and that you deduce from the, the ayah of rest, the right to rest, 
is intellectually interesting. Okay. And among Allah's ayahs is that this is now 24, the, the uh, thunder and, and lightning and the fall of rain. And the cycle of life springing from the elixir of life, water, and that again Allah reminds us, as Allah did in Surah Al-An'am, that your, re, your uh, uh, in, reincarnation or your, your, your re-exist, or uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, huh? Yeah, resurrection. That your resurrection is as straightforward as the cycle of, as when you see rain fall on earth and life springs up. That it is bringing things to life again is a natural thing and it's a straightforward thing for Allah subhanahu wa Okay. And this is emphasized in 27 that Allah, it is a simple matter for Allah to exterminate life and resurrect life. And it is, it is from your perspective, it is something marvelous or something exceptional, but from from divine perspective, it is the most natural and straightforward thing. Okay, then we come to Ayah 28. So what it says is fairly straightforward, that how can you associate partners with Allah when if you owned slaves, you would not accept, or, or at least, first let me know, you would not accept partners in what you own. And this ayah, according to some of the, uh, the, what can I say, the, the unfortunately modern Muslim scholars uh, in the West, because uh, the only ones that I know of are in the West, who are trying to prove that the Quran approves of slavery. This is one of the ayahs that they point to. Now, of course, they ignore the context of the ayah. The context of the ayah is that the Meccans, when they went around the Kaaba, would chant, um, what was it? Yeah. They would say, uh, uh, لبيك الله لبيك لا لبيك لا شريك لك إلا شريكا هو لك 
تملكه وما ملك that لبيك الله we answer the, you call God you have no partners except for a partner that you own but that partner doesn't own you and this ayah is not about slavery this ayah is about responding to these Meccans and to this particularly what the Prophet tells the Meccans is offensive among the first things that Muslims do when they eventually defeat Mecca is to ban the this um, this chant that the Meccans used to do around the Kaaba that you're telling God that you have partners and this area asks the Meccans rhetorically how is it that you can accept the idea that God would have partners in what God owns because all of you are God's ownership when you yourselves do not accept partners in what you own so that's simply you know, to to try to read into it a Quranic approval of the institution of slavery is thick-headed and in my view immoral because you are imposing upon the text an agenda for whatever reason you, you have that agenda because it, it is not saying that having slaves is right or a good thing it is asking the rhetorical question to Meccans if you yourselves cannot accept partners in what you say you own how is it that you are think that it is okay for God to have partners okay okay and then of course it comments on this in 29 by saying that those who do so have followed their wins that they have no basis for what they believe and what they practice other than their wins okay then we get to the foundational and pivotal area in Surah Al-Rum verse 30 which is at the heart and core of the message of Surah Al-Rum so after Allah after the reminder that the issue with shirk is that Allah's relationship to us is the relationship of an absolute owner now an absolute owner that 
decrees in the same way that Allah has decreed mercy upon Allah's self. But Allah has also decreed the principle of volition and choice. لا إكراه في الدين That there is no compulsion. So, and as the Quran consistently reminds time and time again that most people will not believe and that it is not that the messenger is a messenger. So after that reminder, but, but metaphysically when you are thinking of understanding yourself in existence, to understand that you fully belong to Allah, that defines your relationship with your Creator. That defines your relationship to your body, it defines your relationship to your moods, to your feelings, even to your, uh, your thought that the intellect is from Allah and to Allah, that the heart is from Allah and to Allah. And in that relationship, you are completely anchored in knowing why you are and who you are and where you're going. Okay. So after that reminder comes that penultimate statement, فَقِمْ وَجْهَكَ الْدِّينِ حَنِيفًا فِطْرَةُ اللَّهِ الَّتِي فَطْرَ النَّاسَ عَلَيْهَا لَا تَبْدِيلَ لِخَلْقِ اللَّهِ ذَلِكَ الدِّينُ الْقَيِّمُ وَلَكِنْ أَكْثَرَ النَّاسِ لَا يَعْنَمُونَ منيبين إليه واتقوه وأقيموا الصلاة ولا تكونوا من المشركين من الذين فرقوا دينهم وكانوا شيعا كل حزب بما لديهم فرحون. So first here where we get the Quran coming with a clear statement that this is Allah's fitra, this is the fitra, this is the intuition, the instinctive, in, intuitive state that Allah gave human beings. Now notice, فَقِمْ وَجْهَكَ لِلدِّينِ حَنِيفًا So, direct, it's a, a figure of state, a figurative, uh, or a, a figure of speech. Uh, that, so direct your face towards al the Hanif is the unadulterated, uncorrupted, pure religion. So in complete clarity and complete, complete transparency of your relationship to your maker. It's like, it's like Allah saying, turn your gaze towards me. 
where you should get your values, your meaning. In fact, where you should feel your being is with me. Nothing else, no one else. And this is the, the intuition or the instinct that Allah gave human beings. And this in fact is how human beings were made, coded, and the, the, that cannot be altered. The study Quran translates it as the upright religion. That is the whole, the, the, the holistic faith. It's like saying, this is the complete faith. So, of course, but most people do not know. So then we pause here. Because direct your faith towards your Lord, towards a pure, unadulterated understanding of the reason for being, your place for being. In fact, the very nature of understanding your existence and the existence of others and exist and understanding creation itself. But not only that, but even understanding history on understanding geopolitics and understanding something that is remarkable. That the events in life, Allah repeatedly told us up to this point and other surah that Allah knows every leaf that falls, every leaf that grows, every drop. Allah is fully cognizant of all that happens in creation. But here you add another element, is that the surah begins with events that are happening, transpiring, away from where Muslims live. But as the surah goes on, in surah to room, you realize that everything is interconnected under Allah's will. And that what rises, what falls, what wins, what's defeat, what is defeated, it's all interconnected within, within a tapestry, if you will, a matrix of the, of the divine will. So when Allah says, Allah, that this is Allah's fitra, this is Allah's intuition, instinct, what is 
encompassed by that fitrah. Now, there's a hadith of the Prophet, very famous, that most Muslims are, uh, that are, you know, they, they're taught at one point or another, that where the Prophet is attributed to saying, or is reported to say, that all beings are born as Muslim, but then shaitan turned, but then, uh, sorry, all beings are born as Muslim, but then either shaitan comes and makes them kuffar, or they are then uh, raised according to this faith or that faith, Christian or Jewish or whatever. Or, or even in the hadith it says Zoroastrian um, in, in one of the versions of the hadith. And this is, and because of that hadith, the most famous understanding and the most popular understanding of this ayah is that people are born with the intuition or instinctively they are all Muslim. And then they are accultured according to whatever other systems of belief. Okay. However, this in Islamic theology is a, um, there are long discussions about this in Islamic theology because many scholars said that the fitrah that Allah speaks about is, is the fitrah of Deen al-Hanif, which is the fitrah of the Prophet Ibrahim, which we encountered in Surah Al-An'am. Others said that the fitrah is the fitrah to, to reflect upon the ayatullah, the, the signs of Allah, to be cognizant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Although so many Muslims are raised with the idea that the fitrah is that of Islam as a religion. And that's why converts are often called reverts. That's not the school I ascribe to. The fitrah that is clearly being taught, in my view, being addressed in Surah Al-Rum, is the intuitive awareness of a supreme being, intuitive awareness that it takes a counterintuitive act to deny God, to think through and say, no, I'm not going to believe in a God. And the intuition of being naturally able to understand 
that the signs of God to see something beautiful and to say, even when people say Mother Nature, that's that's an intuition of the supreme and divine being. Or even when people say, you know, gods of the south, gods of the north, gods of the east, gods of the west, again, it's a corrupted intuition, but it's an intuition that there is something superior to what we are. When people say, oh, we were made by aliens who deposited us on earth and then left us, and these aliens come visit us in spaceships to warn us that we're destroying the earth. It's a corrupted intuition, but it's a tuition of the divine being. There is something else beyond us. And, but not just an intuition of the divine being, but an intuition of the natural laws of morality and ethics that ultimately Allah will hold people accountable for failing to observe. So justice is an intuition. Companionship is an intuition. Kindness is an intuition. Mercy is an intuition. That when Allah says that this is the fitrah that Allah made in human beings, Allah is not talking about what Islam, as Islam developed and became after the Hijrah and after the revelation of the Medina period and after and what, what Islam became from the reported tradition of the Prophet and the Alil Bayt, the family of the Prophet and the companions of the Prophet, the Sahaba. That is a religion that was a product of a full historical process and part of this religion is that we fast Ramadan, is that we pray five times a day, is that we do all, we perform Hajj, but that's not the fitrah that Allah is talking about. The fitrah that Allah is talking about is the fitrah of being aware of your relationship to the divine when you wake up and when you go to sleep when you conduct your affairs in life. It is a choice. You can recognize this fitrah and say, you know, when people say, you know, my guardian angel, or people say the powers, whatever, that, you know, take care of me. For me, it's all, from my perspective, it's all illogical because, you know, why should there be a guardian angel unless you follow that logic to itself? Or the, but it is once you open, once you recognize your natural awareness that you come from a supreme being and that you will return to supreme being 
and that there is something beyond just the material chemical composition that defines life. Once you are aware of that, then you are aware that you are in the sight of that supreme being as you go about your day, as you start your day and you end your day, if only you open your heart to it. So, in the theological debates, these are actually, so, you know, some have said that this is fitrah, that the fitrah, it's, that the Quran is talking about, is al-fitrah Ibrahimiyyah, the fitrah of the Prophet Ibrahim, Ibrahim or that it is the fitrah ayatullah, or some that said that it is, and these are, I mean, I'm, I'm, some, I'm just stating them as, as positions, but they're actually debates. Or that it is the fitrat sun'illah and al-hasan min al-qabih, what is good and what is bad, but concretely, if you look at Surah Al-An'am and the natural ethical code that it gives us at the end of Surah Al-An'am, and if you look at Surah Rum and the natural ethical code that it will give us at the end of Surah Rum, you would know what the fitrah that Allah is speaking about. Awareness of a supreme being created you and in natural morality that is spelled out in surah like Luqman, Al-An'am, and Surah Al-Rum. And then, ذَلِكَ الدِّينُ الْقَيِّمُ That this, in fact, then, ذَلِكَ الدِّينُ الْقَيِّمُ is not the upright religion. But saying that is the, the unadulterated or uncorrupted awareness that Allah has encoded in human beings. That when, in fact, as Surah Al-An'am teaches us, and Surah Rum too, you deny justice as in natural order of things, as something that should be demanded and sought over, you are going against the fitrah. When you say that it is okay for human beings to be cruel, you are going against the fitrah. When, in fact, as we will see in Surah Al-Rum, even when you say that if I see someone in trouble, and I have the right to not help you, or I don't have an obligation to help, you are going against the fitrah. That there are things that Allah defines that, or norms that define decency. Decency. And decency is a fatwa. 
Yes? Yeah, good. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Okay, coming back from devil attack. Okay, munibina ilayhi. And right after that, that expression, munibina ilayhi, which is not just turning towards Allah, but turning in surrender. It's, it's, and, and notice that it's the grammatical form. So turn your gaze towards Allah. And then the, interject, the interjection about that this is the fitrah. And then it continues by saying that you turn surrendering towards that realization. And is to be cognizant in all you do of the divine. Normally, people translate it as fear God. But taqwa Allah is being cognizant of God. And that is immediately followed with the reminder again and again in the Quran that the key to this relationship is prayer. And do not, again, be among those that associate partners with Allah. And we said whether this is quasi-partners or full partners to Allah. Okay. But here, it goes on to say that part of the corruption is that people split their religion into Shia. Shia means factions, groups. And, and that, that expression is, is remarkable. That each party is sort of giddy about its own little factionism. Um, books of tafsir will normally say that this is a reference to Christians and that the Byzantians, the Christian empire, that the Quran is commenting about the notorious debates of the Council of Nicaea and the numerous factions and sects that came out of both the events leading to the Council of Nicaea and the post-Nicaea period, which Christianity split into uh, numerous factions and so on. But I think that there is no reason to read this Quranic revelation as simply commenting on Christians, because it is stated normatively, and it is addressed to Muslims, and it reminds us again of something that we encountered in Surah Al-An'am. And 
Surat al-An'am has a very similar exhortation, turning to God in purity, in, in, in transparency. What leads, we know from Surat al-An'am that what leads to factionalism are intellectual debates that arise from egotistical needs. And here again, that it is at the same time, Muslim scholars talk at length, well, how do we strike the balance between legitimate disagreements the need for intellectual debate, the need for diversity, and legitimate, and the need for recognizing the right to disagree, and the Quranic exhortation against factionalism. And typically, Muslim scholars will you know, try to strike the balance and saying, well, you could, dis you could disagree as to jurisprudential issues in matter of furua, matters of the branches of the faith, but that disagreement on the usul, on the basics of the faith, is what leads to factionalism. I understand this Quranic discourse a bit differently. If you look at the context, after reminding us of what is intuitive and instinctive, it then reminds us that do not give way to your egos in splitting up uh, and and you. And, splitting up the faith into factions with each faction happy and jovial with what it has. In other words, you know, sort of prideful. What is, and I understand that as, again, as a continuation of the message about the core, about the fitra, that what is core is the realization and the adherence to that natural law that code, basic code of ethics of right and wrong. You could disagree on things that you want to disagree on because you're going to read the evidence differently, you're going to read the text differently, you're going to, you know, say, you're going to read history differently, you're going to read all types of things differently. But what matters is the fitrah. What matters is the, the natural ethical code that you cannot disagree on. So restated, in my view, that you can have a faction that says, um, Ali should have ruled, become Khalifa, uh, 
and not Abu Bakr. But what you cannot have is a faction that says injustice is not, or justice is not important to Allah's plan or to Allah's religion. You go, you, you can have a faction that disagrees about things like the Khilafah or the order of the Khulafah or whatnot, political, these types of political issues. But the ethical code set out in Surah Al-An'am, in the end of Surah Al-An'am, and the ethical code that will be set out at the end of Surah Al-Rum is what you cannot disagree on because that is the core and heart of what Islam is, of what the faith is, and what the fitra is. And imagine, of course, then all our disagreements we can take back to whether they affect an ethical issue or not whether they affect the way you're going to treat your neighbors, whether they affect the way you're going to treat the needy, whether they affect the way that you're going to deal with justice, whether they affect the way that you, whether you will have classes and privileges and the, the, the types of things that we studied in Surah Al-An'am already, if they will, then these are illegitimate disagreements that you will be morally held responsible for. But if your disagreements are on theological issues that ultimately have no bearing on natural ethics, then they're legitimate disagreements. And only Allah will know which one of us is right at the end. It forges a path for Muslims to come together over ethics and put to the side, except in intellectual arenas if they wish, questions about history, the interpretation of history, questions about political favoritism, political parties, fundamentally it is the natural ethics of the Quran that must unite us. And then it, you could both be a Sunni, but if a Sunni, a Sunni that believes in justice and a Sunni who doesn't believe in justice, the difference between them is far greater than a Sunni that believes in justice and a Shi'i that believes in justice. Do you see what I'm saying? It's time that we correct the path because I think we've drifted and deviated from the path way too far. Okay. And then the Quran returns to a theme that again we encountered in Surah Al-An'am that Allah consistently reminds of, reminds us of, 
And when Allah consistently reminds us of something, then it is an invitation to study and reflect because it is a key to our own psychology. And when Allah says that reflect upon the fact that when you are in need, you rush to God, you speak, even if you don't speak, you, the, what you feel is hearkening back to God. And it is when hardship is lifted or when your need is lifted that you start drifting away. إذا مس الناس ضر دعوا ربهم منيبين إليه ثم إذا أذاقهم منه رحمة إذا فريق منهم بربهم يشركون that the fact that this dynamic if you reflect upon it it will tell you a lot about the truth about intuition so if you are tempted to say, I don't believe, or you are tempted to say, my relationship with Allah is fine, imagine a dur. If you're a father or you're a mother, imagine that your child is ill and about to die. Are you going to insist on what you say are your beliefs? Are you going to insist on what you say is your attitude towards life. Imagine that you are on that plane that's going to crash. That moment is the moment of truth. That will tell you a lot more about yourself and about who you really are than everything that you tell yourself when things are going your way and you are enjoying God's blessings. Okay. And note that this is emphasized in Surah Al-Rum twice, which, and we saw it was emphasized in Surah Al-An'am twice. In Surah Al-Rum, it comes back and emphasizes it twice. That وَإِذَا أَذَقْنَا النَّاسَ رَحْمَةً فَرِحُوا بِهَا This is now uh, 36. That the repeated psychological pattern of human beings is that when Allah gives them, they become content and arrogant and aloof with a sense of entitlement. وَإِن تُصِبْهُمْ سَيِّئَةٌ بِمَا قَدَّمَتْ أَيْدِيهِمْ إِذَا هُمْ يَقْنَطُونَ But here then, it is, what's the element is that it is added is that when evil befalls them, and most often the evil that befalls them is because of what they've earned, they quickly despair. 
it's the other side of the coin of when you are in dire need, you call upon God. But there, so you start, you started out in hardship, you call upon God, God gives you what you want, you forget. The, the second time it visits it, it flips it a bit. And then it says that when you are, things are going well, you are oblivious. But then when God allows hardship to befall you by what you've earned, you quickly despair and you question your relationship to God. Meaning when things are not going your way, you quickly start questioning whether in fact things are what you thought they are or the like. Okay. And then, of course, in 37, that reminder that whatever the affairs are under Allah's control and Allah's will, including the most basic issue of risk what you earn and ultimately how you earn it. Okay, then we come, we come back to what we saw, the same process, the same structure as we saw in Surah Al-An'am. In Surah Al-Rum, so after reminding you of these basic elements of belief, and taking you upon this, this, this journey of calling upon you to reflect upon God's creation and upon this and that, it comes back to basic ethical values. So, and this starts at 38. Okay, so all of this introduction, all of this reflecting upon nations that rise and fall, and in fact, even before that, reflecting upon the fact that the Byzantines beat the Sassanids, and the that sorry, the Sassanids beat the Byzantines, and that the, then the, eventually it's going to change and that it's all in Allah's hand, and reflecting upon the fact that Allah is the creator of all, and the creator of meaning, and reflecting upon the purpose for your existence, and where you're from, and so on and so forth, and reflecting upon the futrah, and re then reflecting upon turning to God, and reflecting upon the need to, for prayer, and it takes you through all this journey, then notice the fat and soul, so it's like saying, now, with this introduction, now you want to know what it all boils down to, where the rubber meets the road. And it takes you back to basic ethical precepts. And so, and so, 
What is the soul? Give the qurba. The qurba, of course, are your relatives. They're right. Wal-miskeen. Wabn al-sabil. And the poor. Wabn al-sabil and Ibn al-sabil are travelers or in today's age, they're refugees. Ibn al-sabil, refugees are Ibn al-sabil. People who are on the road, have no home, whether they are heading to a home or not heading to a home, they are Ibn al-sabil. So when Allah instructs that so after all of this, take care, give due to the relatives and to miskin, the poor, and Ibn al-sabil, what we today call refugees or travelers, you then part of the intuition of natural moral ethics is kindness to refugees and taking care of refugees. So it is not, now why, why do I care about this? Because unfortunately, I know what a lot of Muslim countries have been doing with refugees. A lot of Muslim countries treat refugees, although they are like the Rohingyas, who are extremely oppressed people, or they are from China, Muslims from China flee, uh, who are fleeing genocide, uh, although they are escaping war for, warfare like the Syrians. Uh, the treatment is as counter to an ethical fitra as you can get. When you put them, in, incarcerate them in prisons and treat them with, as if they have no rights they're not entitled to share in anything. Uh, a lot of Muslim countries keep them in refugee camps with tents and blankets and, you know, absolutely the bare minimum. That's precisely, and when you defend that, now notice, when you defend that and when you say, I don't have to take care of refugees, in my view, that's, the people who divide their religion into Shia. That is the real dividing of religion into sects and parties. Because here this disagreement is on fundamental ethical values, not on theoretical theological issues or theoretical historical disputes. These are the, this is the real factionalism. Because there are those who possibly want to keep an ethical value, Quranic, moral, ethical, natural value upheld. And those who say the fact that the Quran mentioned it, that is discretionary. It's up to us whether we follow it or not. 
yeah, you know, it's very important that our women be completely covered, but it's not important that we take care of, and in fact, in some cases, when Chinese Muslims have escaped to Muslim countries like to Egypt and Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia turned them over to the Chinese government. And Egypt did the same with Azhar. They collected all the Muslim Chinese students at Azhar and turned them over to the Chinese government to be sent to the concentration camps. That's dividing their face into factionalism and sects. I underscore this because I know it's a different way of understanding our religion. But God is my witness. It's the only way of understanding our religion. If you spend your life in study as much as I have and read as much as I've read, you realize that this is the original conception of what Islam was. Not this corrupted nonsense that seems to prevail in our modern age. Okay. ذَلِكَ خَيْرٌ لِلَّذِينَ يُرِيدُونَ وَجْهَ اللَّهِ وَأُولَاءَكَ هُمُ الْمُفْلِحُونَ So, and Allah affirms this, not just with fair, so give such and such the rights, but the emphasis here that this is the path, this is the khayr, this is the goodness, for those who want yuruduna wajhallah, that who want Allah's face, meaning want Allah in their life. And those, wahuman muflihun, those are the ones who are truly the, the, the muflihun, the, the, the ones who are successful, the ones who are on the right path. Okay. وَمَا أُتِيتُمْ مِنْ رِبَا لِيَرْبُوا فِي أَمْوَالِ النَّاسِ فَلَا يَرْبُوا عِنْدَ اللَّهِ وَمَا أُتِيتُمْ مِنْ زَكَاةُ تُرِدُونَ وَجْهُ اللَّهِ فَأُولَئِكَ هُمُ الْمُضَعْفِونَ وَمَا أُتِيتُمْ مِنْ رِبَا لِيَرْبُوا فِي أَمْوَالِ النَّاسِ فَلَا يَرْبُوا عِنْدَ اللَّهِ we usually define as usually. But here, riba doesn't mean technical usually. That comes later. The ayah is saying that those who bring forward money or material possessions, and what they hope to earn from it is a profit from people. That doesn't earn dividends with Allah. So later on, when usury is explicitly prohibited, when scholars went back to these ayat and said, well, it applies to riba as well, because it's saying, for instance, if you loan someone money, and what you hope for by loaning this money 
is to make more money. That doesn't earn dividends with Allah. But if you loan someone money and what you hope is you're loaning this person money because you want to marry their daughter, that doesn't earn dividends. If you loan someone money and you do so because you want people to say that you're rich and powerful, that doesn't earn dividends. But what you give as zakat, and here zakat, the, the official zakat is decree is later. It comes in the Medina period. But what you put forward in your money to purify yourself before Allah, that does earn dividends with Allah. So right within the issue of natural morality, does someone want to get the door? Right within the issue of natural morality is your relationship to money and material things. It's like saying, do not fool yourself if what you're putting forward in, is in, in order to earn more money, to earn privilege, to earn power then that's not something that God rewards you for or that God will take as an offering of zakah. Zakah meaning purifying your money, purifying yourself. But whatever you do with the proper intention, for Allah's sake, then that in fact does act like a purifier. That those are the ones who truly are truly are the winners. Okay. Then Allah goes back to remind you often in tafsir books they tell you that it, Allah's returns to the issue of Allah's ability and Allah's creation and so on but not quite look at what it says so after telling you this 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 point about money Allah الذي خلقكم ثم رزقكم ثم يميتكم ثم يحييكم هل من شركائكم من يفعل من ذلك من شيء سبحانه وتعالى عما يشكون. So in emphasizing this point about your relationship to material things, it's Allah knows that often our true act of shirk is in fact in relationship to money that we often give money a quasi shirk or a quasi partnership because it is the authority in our lives and it comes and says well 
It is Allah that created you, Allah that brings you to life, and Allah that who the risk is from Allah. What you earn, what you have is from Allah. And that ultimately it is Allah who will, who will it is Allah who will take you away and Allah who will resurrect you. But then the, the rather than plain and obvious point, if that is so, how can you have that attitude towards material possessions and towards money that you think that the main attitude towards money is that you are free to do with it what you wish or that you are free to spend it in order to gain more profit or in order to promote your ego or to promote yourself rather than uh, the main goal of money is zakah. Here zakah is not alms again. The main goal of money in your hand is to purify yourself with your Lord. Purify yourself, meaning that as you, in fact, go about determining how you're going to handle this money, the attitude, the correct attitude, is that how can this money purify me, i.e. bring me closer to God. It's an utter complete paradigm shift. It is telling you, you look at your possessions, including of course money, as how can I use it to bring me closer to God, not how can I use it to uh, do whatever people want to do with money. Okay. And that is why right after this, right, it, right after that statement about the problem is that often people in relationship to material things is that they develop a shirk relationship with Allah. That it is, it is, you know, Allah is there, fine and good, but the one who calls the shots in real life is money and is material possessions. That's the, what really calls, that's what defines values. And that's precisely what Surah al is getting at, is that it cannot be that money defines your values. Then what follows, what follows this right away, So then it points your attention to again a point that should be obvious, that it is precisely the failure to heed God's natural law. It is precisely the failure to eat the qurba and in miskin and zusabir that to take care 
or, or to, to recognize the ethical norms that are naturally coded in existence. And especially this relationship with material things and materiality, what does it lead to? That facade corruption explodes and the Zahar al Fasadu fil Barri wal Bahr. It's like saying corruption has spread everywhere, on earth and in the seas, by the deeds of people. And the commentary on that is that. This corruption, the spread of this corruption, is that so people will see the consequences of their actions. Perhaps they will return to their Lord. Of course, this is 41. So, Now, if you are sitting receiving Surah Al-Rum, at the time you're receiving it, you are aware that the Sassanid Empire is very materialistic, very corrupt, with a remarkable amount of cruelty, the idea of taking care of, the, of those who are close or relatives and the miskin and the wayfarer and so on doesn't exist and the same can be said about the Byzantine Empire but also the same can be said about Meccan society and so you're sitting at this pivotal point you are being told at this point at a point in which you are persecuted and most Muslims are destitute It is preempting what it has told you already that Muslims will be ultimately victorious, but it is preempting your ethical relationship with material things and with money by saying that, look, if you see corruption spread everywhere, know that the point is that and corruption and cruelty, because definitely if you read the history of the Sassanids and the history of the Byzantines, the amount of cruelty in both empires is just horrendous. Reflect that this is by what human beings themselves have created, but that Allah is constantly The, the divine position is the hope that people will return to Allah. And when you remember that you turn to Allah, everything in Surah Al-Rum so far, returning to Allah is not simply saying, I believe in Allah, but it is an entire ethical universe that comes with believing in Allah. 
then you understand why that is cited as an antidote to the spread of corruption on the earth and in the seas. Because um, otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. It, it's, they're very corrupt, so what, if they believe in God and, and continue on their way of life, nothing will change in the corruption. But it is the fact that belief in God is interlinked with a natural law and a natural ethics coded in the, the universe. So, and that is reaffirmed in 42. So, go ahead, reflect upon those that came before you. And you would expect that at this point, it's going to say that most of them were zalimeen, most of them were unjust, because that's what Surah Al-An'am told us. But instead what it says is that most of them were mushriks. Mushriks in the sense of what? Of the shirk. If you say most of them were, were mushriks, without understanding the ethical message in it, then it wouldn't make sense. Then why is that facade? Why is that destruction? When Allah already told us that an, an unjust party that doesn't believe will be given victory over, uh, sorry, a just party that doesn't believe will be given victory over an unjust party that does believe. The point I'm emphasizing is the conception of shirk here. That shirk is selfishness. Shirk is egocentrism. Shirk is materialism. Shirk is a, the very philosophy of existentialism. When you say, I exist and there is no point ultimately. All of that is within the philosophy of shirk. Okay. And then the reminder again, فَقِمْ وَجْهَكَ لِلدِّينِ الْقَيِّمِ مِنْ قَبْلِ أَنْ يَأْتِي يَوْمٌ لَا مَرَدَّ لَهُ مِنَ اللَّهِ يَوْمَئِذٍ يَصْطَدَّعُونَ مَنْ كَفَرَ فَعَلَيْهِ كُفُرُ وَمَنْ عَمِلَ صَالِحًا فَلِأَنْفُسِهِمْ يَمْهَدُونَ so become aware of a deen al-qayyim. Hold firm to, and we said, although deen al-qayyim is usually translated as the upright religion, which doesn't really give you any sense of meaning, right? But a deen al-qayyim, is the, I would translate it as the fully ethical religion. If you will, the, the religion with all the natural ethical values that the Quran imparts. That before, simply put, before it's too late. And of course, here, it, 
the, it speaks in the singular, so it's as if it seems like it's talking to the Prophet but we know that when it addresses, when the Quran addresses itself to the Prophet, it is specifically addressing the Prophet and his followers. And the reminder that ultimately, that ultimately there, before the day where you bear the consequences of your actions. But again, the Quran goes back as we've seen in every single surah so far, that the reminder, man kafara fa'alayhi kufr, that ultimately each person is responsible for their own beliefs. That element of volition, again, 46 and 47, and 48 is the Quran when quite often when the Quran makes an ethical point and then goes back to the point of creation and the reminder of about Allah's relationship to creation it is preparing or leading up for another ethical point this is typical Quranic style. It goes back and forth like that. But anyway, so the reminder that it is Allah that has created the movement of winds and the winds which are essential for the creation of clouds and the, 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 the cycle of rain on earth without which human life cannot exist but within this notice 48 we've sent before you messengers to people and that ultimately we've punished those who have offended and it is truly incumbent upon us, upon God, to give victory to the believers. I pause on this because how do we understand the issue of وَكَانَ حَقًّا عَلَيْنَا نَصْرُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ that it is incumbent upon us to give victory to believers. Best way to, to um, the Prophet is asked about this verse. And what is reported is fascinating. So he said, Mamin Muslim Yaruddu an ardi akhih illa kana haqqan ala Allah an yaruddu anhu nara jahannam Thumma tala al-aya wa kana haqqan alayna nasr al-mu'mineen 
to the Prophet says, the way that you understand this is that no Muslim, if, if a Muslim comes to defense of his brother, then it really becomes incumbent upon Allah to protect that Muslim from hellfire. So in other words, it is what you do to your fellow brothers and sisters in protecting them. And ard here is the honor and dignity of his brother. Except that Allah will in fact then make your what you pay forward in the way you deal with others, Allah rewards you in the hereafter. Now this is in a, a rather unexpected way of understanding this. forty-seven, because you would think that what it's talking about is victory in battles. But in fact, the Prophet's commentary on it is that if you help your fellow brother and sister, then Allah will help you in turn, especially in the hereafter. Think about that. So, Allah's victory is ultimately, if you take Allah's message seriously, it is in upholding ethics, an ethical society in which people actually help each other, and in turn, Allah responds to that. It is not simply a matter of Allah being on your side in a battle or not on your side, which then we then it completely sinks with the message of Surah Al-An'am that Allah is with justice. And Allah is with an ethical society. So after Allah's reminder. And Allah says, look at my mercy, how I bring forth the dead land into life, meaning the growth of vegetation, the growth of life. And that this is the, the, the crux of understanding what Allah's uh, what Allah's relationship to creation. Allah is the bringer of life and the Allah is the resurrector of life because that in Surah Al-Rum it is emphasized repeatedly. And that 
although life and resurrection, life, death, and resurrection is what Allah, it's a cycle in existence. And this I'm going to tie at the end. I'm going to tie it to the whole message of Surah Al-Rum, as you'll see. Is the very part of the cycle of existence itself. Human beings, their relationship to this cycle is often to become boisterous and arrogant when they have plenty and to despair. And when they don't have plenty. So this is again in 51. وَلَئِنْ أَرْسَلْنَا رِيحًا فَرَعُوهُمْ مَصْفَرًا لَظَلُّ مِنْ بَعْدِهِ يَكْفُرُونَ That if the bounties that we give them are withdrawn, they despair. So, what is the conclusion to all of this? Note. فَإِنَّكَ لَا تُسْمِعُ الْمَوْتَى وَلَا تُسْمِعُ الصُّمَّ الدُّعَاءَ إذ ولوا مدبرين وما أنت بهذه العمية عن ضلالتهم إن تسمع إلا من يؤمن بآياتنا فهم مسلمون So the conclusion to all of this remember you are not going to be able to get someone who is running away مدبر who turns away from you they're like deaf and blind, and you are not going to be able to reach them. There are people who are simply unreachable. And in fact, this message, this entire ethical message, is for those who believe in our ayah and are Muslim. So, in Surah Al-Rum, this ethical journey, it's like saying to the Prophet, don't expect that those who don't believe will understand what we're talking about. Those who are intent on being blind and deaf will remain so. This is a core message for those who say they believe, those who are in fact Muslim. Because this is critical to the entire message of Surah al let's, let's stop for Maghrib and then come back. And after Allah's reminder that there are People that are unreachable. Allah, who خَلَقَكُمْ مِنْ ضَعْفٍ ثُمَّ جَعَلَ مِنْ بَعْدِ ضَعْفٍ قُوَّةٍ ثُمَّ جَعَلَ مِنْ بَعْدِ قُوَّةٍ ضَعْفًا وَشَيْبًا يَخْلِقُ مَا يَشَاءُ وَهُوَ الْعَلِيمُ الْقَدِيرُ وَيَوْمَ تَقُومُ السَّاعَةُ يُقْسِمُ الْمُجْرِمُونَ مَا لَبِثُوا غَيْرَ سَاعَةٍ كَذَلِكَ كَانُوا يُؤْفَكُونَ وقال الذين أوتوا العلم والإيمان لقد لبثتم في كتاب الله إلى يوم البعث فهذا يوم البعث ولكنكم كنتم لا تعلمون
فيومئذ لا ينفع الذين ظلموا معذرتهم ولا هم يستعتبون ولقد ضربنا للناس في هذا القرآن من كل مثل ولئن جئتهم بآية ليقولن الذين كفروا إن أنتم إلا مبطلون كذلك يضع الله على قلوب الذين لا يعلمون فاصبر إن وعد الله حق ولا ولا يستخفنك الذين لا يقنون So after that message the cycle on again that theme in Surah Rum the cycle of life Allah who creates human beings from nothing or from absolute weakness to strength and from strength the process of aging and from aging weakness again and and that يَخْلِقُ مَا Allah creates whatever Allah wishes and that the relativity of time in this in that when the time comes those the offenders those who have denied the message will swear that they have been but it's felt like but an hour has gone by from the point of their death till the hereafter. But those who but those who have Elm and Iman, those who have faith and knowledge they will know that this is what in fact what Allah has promised all along. Okay. And then that Allah reminds us that this Quran its messages or um, its method, its it's, method is an anecdote, but it doesn't here it doesn't mean an anecdote, but it's lessons that we have given human beings specific lessons in this Quran purposefully and meaningfully, although those who do not believe their reaction to these lessons will be basically in non-response, that non-comprehension. Okay. So ultimately Fosbir Haq persevere because Allah's promise is true. And do not allow those لا يقنون means those who do not have certitude 
those who do not have a firm, not just belief, but those who, are, who lack certitude, do not allow their lack of certitude to seed doubt in your heart. Now, obviously, it is unthinkable that the Prophet would be the one who would be affected by the lack of certitude of people. But it is not addressed, it's as often this Quranic style, although it's speaking in the singular form, it is actually speaking to you, to believers, in the singular form. That do not let the lack of certitude of others affect what you know to be true. So then we take a step back and we think of what did Surah Al-Rum accomplish? And again, in its specific period following Surah Al-An'am. So we know that Surah Al-An'am is the point, is the, the major surah that introduces the whole point of natural law and natural ethics. But Surah Al-Rum comes in and adds an element to what Muslims were not aware of, but they, they what was going to become true, is that they were going to deal with the challenge of politics at what we today call a global scale at, at a historical scale, because they were going to be making history. And the critical point that as you engage this, these events at a much larger scale, at what you know, in 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 our day we would say at a global scale. In their day, they would say at a at an imperial scale. As you engage events at that level and at that scale, it is critical that you remain anchored in the awareness that the movement, the the um, the cycle of life itself, is in Allah's hand. That. No, no one just wins happenstance, and no one just loses happenstance. But this is all subject to Allah's will. But more than the subject to Allah's will, that Allah's will itself has set before you clear ethical paths and clear ethical laws. These ethical laws are as certain and as stable as fitrah, as an instinct in all of you, you all of human beings.
that if you want to understand these ethical laws, do not just reflect about the, what we would call the geopolitics of your age, but reflect upon history and reflect upon the cycle of life and death. And you will find that in reflecting upon this, that indeed there are standards for why nations rise and why nations fall. They will always rise and fall in the same way that there's a cycle of life, birth, life, strength, weakness, and death, and then resurrection. That's a natural movement of things. But this movement of things, within it are stable ethical laws and that people are undone by their own corruption and that if you want to understand why things become corrupt, in Surah Al-An'am the focus was on justice. In Surah Al-Rum the focus is on relationship to the very concept of shirk that when human beings start relating to material things as an ethical goal in and of themselves, and material things in fact define ethics, they become the definer of what's right and wrong. That's when corruption spreads and appears, and that's what ultimately the fall occurs by what people have earned. You want to understand the nature of your relationship to material things, then understand that it all comes from Allah, and it all is decreed and decided by Allah, the very material that you own is for Allah and that if you own material things then you should own them with an ethical understanding that they should be leveraged for the ethical purposes or spent in the way of Allah and their ethical purposes is to take care of your kin, to take care of the destitute, and to take care of the wayfarer, or what we call today the refugees, and the travelers, and those who are without, displaced human beings. These are the, the people who are displaced in, in some form or another. And that That attitude is not possible. That type of ethical attitude is not possible unless you anchor in your heart 
the uh, temporality, temporality of life itself. That while there is a great strength and beauty to life, but ultimately it is a cycle and it is a matter of time that time itself is in Allah's control or Allah's management. And that this is all summed up by turning your face toward your Lord. It is like saying, make your moral being, your ethical character, derived from your relationship with God, not derived from your relationship to power or your relationship to material things. So what is remarkable, what there's a lot of things that are very striking about Surah Al-Rum, but most striking for me is the fact that it comes in and it makes clear that you as Muslims, as long as you are united over your belief in Allah and the ethical code that Allah teaches you, your disagreements are one thing, but it is when you start separating around these basic basic ethics is when you become truly a Shia. You are no longer one. Because the very concept of brotherhood, sisterhood, a single ummah is broken. And that it, for a people that are about to embark on the hijrah in short, in, in a short span of time, it is among the surah of the Quran, it is the most that challenges existentialist attitudes or attitudes that simply doesn't understand a point in life. And a warning that the surah ends up with, ends with, that it is easy, even if you're Muslims, to start being affected in your ethical core if you allow the lack of certitude, and we'll see in, so later on when in Medina, with the whole dynamic was the munafiqun, the hypocrites. If you allow those who lack certitude to make you question that basic ethical core upon which you unite as Muslims, and this we'll, we'll see affirmed again and again in Medina, especially as Muslims interact with people who were part of them, who counted as part of them, but who were full of doubt about so many ethical issues that will confront Muslims. 
And then when you think back, when you encounter the challenges in Medina, and you think back of the message of Surah Al-Rum, you, you say, wow. So this is what it was warning them about. This is what it was telling them to be cognizant of and to not lose sight. Um, anyway, the, the last thing I'll just say as a historical point, um, although Muslims fell into political factionalism, um, what was very interesting is that certain morality and ethics, they did not fall into ethical factionalism because certain morality and ethics remained core regardless of your political faction for a very long time. It was you know, the, the Umayyads could claim that they're entitled to rule over Al-Bayt and so on and so forth, but the Umayyads could not afford, or the Abbasids, or for a long time, the, the, everyone who was, who was counted as legitimate in the Islamic playing field could not afford to ignore a basic ethical core to what Islamicity meant. And I see the biggest danger in the modern age is that the fracturing of the ethical core. When you, you find Muslims, as we, we saw, for instance, who support Donald Trump and say, well, you know, his attitude about refugees and his ban of, his Muslim ban or his ban of refugees, it doesn't matter. It, it's, you know, that shouldn't be a priority. That's, that's a red alert that is of a whole different level. Far more important than whether you're Shia or Sunnah or whatever else. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Um, thank you so much for uh, this um, unbelievable surah that, um, you know, certain surahs hit you um, just, I mean, I, I always say at a moment, we reach a point where it just hits me so viscerally and it's, it's like overwhelming. But this surah I felt was overwhelming at so many different levels. When we talk about, you know, um, when we start putting the different surahs together too, I feel like there's such this beautiful, this beautiful synchronicity. Like I don't remember which surah it was, but you know when you talked about the idea of um, you know if you believe in a god that's beautiful, why would you believe in any different kind of god? And then this surah comes and says, you know if you don't believe in something, so you basically if you came from nowhere and you're going nowhere, then you're basically nothing and you're just a random event. Mm -hmm. You know, you put that together and then you think, okay, so clearly I would choose a beautiful God over no God or a God that's not beautiful. 
And then you think about fitra and the message of the surah, and the fitra is something that God has given to Muslims and non-Muslims. And so this, this beautiful idea that this is not just a fitra of Islam, it's a fitra of creation and human beings and something that is um, inherently decent and that everyone can pull from, is born with, doesn't need necessarily education or anything, but you have it within you. And I've heard you say so many times, you have within you what it takes to find God and connect with God. Um, and just the idea that, um, you know, how, how can we, like when you were listening to this, for me, when I listened to this halakha, and it talks about even like the idea of turning your money toward, as to become a vehicle for how you become closer to God. And you know, we live in a time where everything is about profit, everything is about commercialization, everything is about money, and completely turning that on its head. I mean, I feel really grateful that it's like, you know, even among these other, um, you know, the categories that the Quran lays out, it's like, you know, we have a lot of people that support the work we do. We've talked obviously about how um, right now, you know, the battle is, the battlegrounds are in the battle of ideas and, you know, Islamophobia and, and all of this. And so I feel really blessed that there are a lot, there, you know, there's a small group of people that support us um, and, you know, we get, you know, people who donate, you know, $20 every, every day, $5 here, $10 there. You know, these are like donations of love because they recognize that what we're trying to do is allow people to reach the Quran and understand, like, you know, when, when, when we get this kind of learning and it helps us to understand the world and understand our role in it and, and what even our beautiful God wants for everyone, whether we're Muslim or not. Um, I feel really blessed that, that this, this work is a way that, you know, um, we can contribute um, to helping others hopefully find God and find this beautiful message. Um, so part of this is just also saying thank you to everyone who has supported this work, because I don't know how can, if you don't, if you can't access the Quran as a Muslim, and you can't understand what the message was supposed to tell us, you know, how to live our lives and how to think about life and everything like that. If you can't access that knowledge, how can you live and, and find beauty and elevate and, and find purpose and meaning? Um, so thank you to everyone who, who supported that. And then, you, you know, like after a while, you, you think back to Muslim spaces and people who are willing to fall on their sword over whether a woman wears hijab or not or whether you know this um, technicality of law um, is the right one or the wrong one, or even you just you know pop on any social media thing and you like listen to Muslims and you read what they are talking about and you're like, oh my God, this is so far away from everything that matters. So, um, alhamdulillah, so just you know to share that I again, this, this knowledge is just life transforming and, and stunning. I feel that we're so blessed to be here to receive it. And um, so thank you. Um, should we take a moment to have people send their questions through? Um, okay, so let's take a, just a quick, what, five minute, so we can, um, people can send through their questions and then we'll start the Q&A um, and, and be back. Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, if anybody wants to um, adopt Surarum and use their money to get closer to God, <laughs> Surarum is available. So let me just put that out there. Um, 
And actually, I should ask you about the vicar for the surah. Oh, yeah, this is, this, uh, yeah. Go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll. Okay. Um, Cheyenne, do you want to start us off? Sure. All right. Thank you so much, Sheikh. Uh, it feels like if this is very late in the uh, Meccan period, uh, and especially after Surat Al-Am, which is very... I assume difficult and dense, probably even for the Sahaba at the time. Uh, part of me just imagines or feels that people were at their wit's end at this point and um, had the feeling that there's just no way, you know, like, like, yes, I believe in this ethical message and I believe in this ethical core of justice, etc., etc. And yes, we're not supposed to be politically pragmatic. But th there's no way out of this hellhole for us. It's kind of mm -hmm. like I get the feeling that that's probably what it felt like or what it would feel like. And then this surah just opens up with, with the strangest reference to, you know, mm -hmm. modern times. Rome has fallen, you know, like, you know, uh, and, and in the unlikeliest scenario, they're going to completely change it around and, and come back and win. Um, mm -hmm. Which is kind of like the, you know, like usually it feels like the Quran does. Usually it feels like we do a little bit of gymnastics to try to say like the Quran is making predictions, but this is like a very clear mm -hmm. situation. So I wanted to ask, um, is this one of the rare times where the Quran does maybe offer a little bit of um, consolation if you're looking closely in that? really the message being, and this is what I feel that you, you were saying, is the message being that it all can change, you know, in a heartbeat. Just do your job and, you know, not, not only like will the, because it usually was open-ended in other surahs. Do your job, maybe, maybe you win, maybe you lose. Mm -hmm. But this was a story of clear, you know, it seems clear that you will lose and there's no way out of, there's no way to win and yet you will win, you know, many times over. Yeah. The Dick, by the way, is uh, 17 and 18. Um, the, um, yeah, and I, and I think it was taken that way because there, the narrative about Abu Bakr and his bet uh, with Ubay, whether authentic or not, I mean, I, I'm, I mean, but what it clearly, because there's so many different reports, what it clearly indicates is that Muslims took this as a message that they are, for the first time, the Quran is going through and saying, you will be happy with God's victory. That God will give you victory and you will be happy. And so, of course, 
the, that was subject to a great amount of ridicule by the Meccans because it was not even in the, you know, in, in conceivable. I mean, after all, the, the Meccans said, well you, well, you can go to Medina as long as you leave all your possessions behind. But what if you what you find in the Sira is Surat al-Rum gave um, Muslims a certain degree of jubilance and confidence. But um, what also Surat al-Rum then be, and and part in, in part where it, where it says that you know it's all up to Allah. And although you see the the you know party appear victorious and dominant right now, Allah knows what's going to transpire, and in fact that party is going to be losing. And that that confidence in, in being in Allah's hands, Allah knows what the results are. But at the same time, which is the dhikr of the surah, that The, the instruction to tie their entire rhythm of, in life to their relationship with Allah. That, subhanAllah, hina tuzbuhun, hina tumsun, you know, subhanAllah, when you begin your day and you end your day, walhamdulillah, when you begin your day and you end your day, and this, this entire, and this is what the, strikes you the most about the the Muhajirun, the, the 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 party that did the Hijrah, is that they're they, they living with the Prophet's example is that they very much tied their entire existence to a close relationship with Allah, and. As a result, I believe would have accepted whatever came from Allah as, and that's what the Quran trained them for. I mean, prepared them for. Um, so I think, yeah, the, the Surah Rum had a very personal message to them that there, there will be victory. At the same time, gave them that sense of confidence that it's all in Allah's hand. Which is the type of which is the type of confidence that gives tranquility and repose and serenity to a real believer, someone who reaches that level of thinking of Allah the the, the first thing when they wake up, thinking of Allah the, the the last thing when they go to sleep. Allah is constantly on their mind. Um, they reach that level of serenity because it's whatever Allah brings us is. It's all the same to them, and and but uh, and that relationship also to to material things, um, because that would have been the the level of financial sacrifice that the Muhajirun did um, before the Hijrah is unthinkable unless your entire attitude towards material things has been adjusted. I mean, 
you're leaving behind your home, your, your property, everything you've known, just for a belief system. Uh, that's saying a lot. I think it's um, it's very interesting that in the, in the context of your approach to to the surah, the verses on choosing a partner on marriage is it can seem a, a little bit out of context um, or out of place or random I think is a better way of putting it but what I'm wondering is two two parts number one when it's when it says partners is it only talking about marriage or could it be argued that it's it's also talking about friendship or other types of partnership and the other one is kind of what, what I'm turning over in my mind as what might be the connection or how that fits into the surah is that um, that if it is just only in relation to marriage that might make sense because it's such an integral part of the fabric of society and nowadays it's especially in Arab cultures I don't think as much in other like Indonesian culture or South Asian cultures is not as, as prevalent but it's almost like gospel that the partner you choose it's like men get married at 40 the women get married young and the men get married at 40 because they're the providers and they need to be a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer or have some some job of equivalent so that they can provide but it, it seems it's almost ironic because it's basically it, your security has to be based in the god of the empire Br bring that to the table and then I'll build my partnership on that and it almost seems as if the, the normalization now is that the institution of marriage is one that is based on something that is fundamentally shook rather than finding someone who brings mercy and affection and and, mm -hmm. um, and has, their, has, has their security based on Allah um, and that to me if if marriage is such an integral part of the fabric of society I know there's a lot of other Muslim circles that actually do talk about this and there are a lot of good discussions around it um, but I, I feel like it's something that's that's so important in, in one way that people can really get honest about what their values are and what they're actually worshipping through their actions and, and through their intentions yeah I mean it, it the the ayah says, um, that an aswaj here, the, the form seems to indicate clearly marriage and not just any partnership. Um, but the the reason it's not out of place because it is talking about what I refer, refer to the, the natural morality. So it, it says that 
we, we, uh, as it addresses the issue of partnership based on companionship and mercy and mawadda and uh, uh, um, yeah, um, kindness and, and companionship. And this is right before it reminds us that part of the natural morality is diversity and difference. So it's like saying, um, yeah, understand that, you know, power, the, the, the rise and fall of power is in, in God's hands. And understand that the, there is a, that there is a supreme being who ultimately owns this universe and is responsible for this universe. Um, but then it comes to the, uh, what is the natural order that you should be concerned about? Is partnership, companionship, accepting the differences among people as natural and as part of God's plan um, and then before it goes on to the other ethical messages. So it actually is, it, it's like saying, um, finding, <coughs> being in, a, in, in relationships based on kindness and based on companionship is critical. Accepting, it's like someone, you know, it, uh, summarizing the morality that is, um, that is needed for life, accepting diversity and differences in languages and culture and and colors and race is it's part of what makes you a good human being. Uh, accepting that you have an obligation to help the needy is what makes you a good human being. And the hadith of the prophet about that. Part of what makes you a good human being is how you treat your family. I mean, that, that's really the, the, the core moral thing, is that if your family, what your family experiences from you is something other than mawadda wa rahma, other than companionship, fraternity, friendliness, and compassion, then you're not an ethical human being. Then you lack ethical core. If you don't accept diversity and if you're, uh, you know, you don't like the fact that foreigners speak different languages or that you're not comfortable with all the races that exist, you lack ethical integrity. If you think you don't owe an obligation to, uh, to take care of your relatives, or to take care of the poor, or to take care of those who are displaced or are homeless, then you lack ethical integrity. So Surat al-Rum is, is, is defining our relationship to our existence, but it's also explaining to us what you need for ethical integrity, what you need for the fitrah. And critically, it says that, you know, in the, the, the way I understand Surah the room 
is that if your relationship to your family is basically, you know, to go around flouting your power and your authority, then that's not futra, that's culture. That, you know, what we call patriarchy and misogyny and things like that. That's not futra, that's, that's culture. The ones that makes you so, you know, distant within a, fa within a family and sexist and etc. etc. But I think the point that you also bring is really critical because, yes, it is a form of shirk to, absolutely, it is a form of shirk that you say, well, you know, uh, my, my first thing that I look, out, look, for, look out for is instead to find a real companion, a friend, because mawadda, mawadda is friendliness. I mean, literally friendliness, to be a good friend. Is a, it's friendship and compassion. I want my partner to be a source of, first, financial security. And that is shirk. And it, it, it is sad that you find it far more common among Muslims than other cultures. So the irony is Muslim cultures have become more shirky than non-Muslim cultures. Uh, you know, in, in, um, among young Jewish people or among even young Christian people, you find a lot of people who you know, the, 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 the issue of financial security is, is it's actually, they, they consider it a little bit demeaning for a woman to think, oh, I, I've got to marry someone who will take care of me financially. She considers it beneath her, degrading to her. And she wants a companion. Among Muslims, somehow, we've ignored what the Quran said about the institution of marriage and focused on the, had, what, the hadith literature that talks about the duty of the husband to spend or support. So again, we've put law before morality because we, we jumped on the legal commandments about, that were designed to make sure that women at an age, at a, at a time and a place where women often were not employed uh, and were not employable. So it, you know, the, the, the legal commandments were designed to make, say, okay, well, we need to make sure that women don't become destitute because that's a problem. Because then the only solution for a woman was to go into prostitution. And that's what happened when women did go into prostitution is that there was no, no family member to care of them, so they go to prostitution. Uh, we've turned the law into the entire morality. And so every Muslim woman now thinks of, well, does my husband provide for me? And it, frankly, it, it disturbs me that non-Muslims have the good, the correct ethical attitude of um, no, I, I want someone who respects me and someone who is 
an equal to me and someone who is a companion. While Muslims have that shirky attitude of, I don't trust that Allah will take care of me, so I've got to make sure that I trust that my husband will take care of me. I mean, yeah, that, that's just, um, and it, it will take, I mean, it, that, that's why we, we need a, an ethical revolution in our thinking. That's why we have to go back to the Quran because we, we've, we've largely marginalized the, the ethics of the Quran. And, you know, there are people, I know people who, who haven't even read the Quran, leave alone study the Quran, leave alone memorize the Quran, but they will spend their time reading hadith, uh, which is mind-boggling. I mean, you're not even qualified. Hadith is, 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 is very historically contingent. You, you, I don't think just a layperson should sit there and just read hadith. Because hadith is historically contingent. It needs a teacher. Um, but remarkably, that, that's, what, that's what we've done with our religion. I mean, um, but I, I say that because it is usually the, you know, these positive legal commandments about who should, you know, and it's not a matter of men should support. It, it's a matter of making sure that there is a social welfare system in society. And this is the way that the social welfare system works. Um, the morality of the law has to adapt to the age. And our social welfare system in terms of men provide for women has resulted in very sexist attitudes and in a lot of very unhappy homes. Uh, we need to rethink our ethics say the least. Okay. Last call and questions here. All right. Um, this is a question from Hala on the interactive group. Um, does Fitra only refer to good natural intuitions of human beings? What is the take on the idea that less ideal tendencies also exist in a human's original disposition? Things like jealousy, greed, etc. Yeah. Um, Normally, futra it refers to um, uh, uh, and the word instinct is 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 not a good translation because instinct it's um, uh, sort of biologically what is part of of who we are, including good or bad. While futra refers to intuition and. Intuition usually, the English word, doesn't refer to negative things. It refers to positive things, to what's intuitive. So, you know, jealousy, we don't say jealousy is intuitive, but it would say jealousy is inst instinctive. Um, Futra is like intuition. It's, it's um, the, what, the part of us that gravitates towards the ethical. Um, 
Hawa is more like instinct, meaning all the urges within you. That's your Hawa, that's what is instinctively in you. And what you are then supposed to confront and reform. So, um, yeah, of course, we, we have a lot of things that are biologically encoded in us and they serve some good function under certain circumstances. So even something like jealousy, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's an instinct in us that if channeled in the right way could lead us to challenge one another to become better human beings. It could drive the, a, 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 a healthy ad, competitive attitude where we try to do our best um, so we don't feel belittled um, before others. It could help in keeping commitment between partners alive so that you know they don't start drifting and getting attracted to other things or other people. Um, but however, by its nature, unless directed towards what is healthy, is usually destructive. Unlike fatra, which is intuition, where you are actually the, the intuitive is what is naturally good. The, this is sort of roughly what, how they translate and the dynamics to which they point. Okay, I think this is a question from Omar um, on the interactive group. Is it shirk to believe that humans play a negotiative role in defining morality with Allah? I've come to believe that while the source of moral ideals comes from Allah, it is human experience that gives morality its fullest texture and makes the divine ideals relevant to us. No, it's not true. Actually, the, um, I mean, I've written on this and, uh, and better intellects, uh, like Suhrawardi, for instance, when he talks about the tahad al-aqr wal-maqul, um, so Rawardi, who's, who's a marvelous philosopher, uh, in, how do I put it? that consciousness is constantly between the, the, the perceiver and the perceived are constantly making each other. And that consciousness is constantly engaged in a creative process. And being, it forms and is in turn formed. And what Suhrawardi argues, and the, the, there are, like Mullah Sadr also talks about the idea of Ittihad al-Aqil wal-Maqul, um, that there are the moral precepts, the ethical precepts, are 
constant but broad, but moral precepts gain their conceptualization from the dynamic between the aqil, the rational agent, and the ma'qul, what the rational agent perceives. And it is, so for instance, um, generosity it is an ideal, it's a, it's a moral precept or ethical precept. But how we define morale generosity will vary from age to age because of the dynamic between the rational agent and what is rationalized upon. Same thing with, let's say, um, the idea of mercy. You know, it might have been merciful in, a, in, in bygone ages or in one age to instead of throwing someone in prison because prisons at a certain age um, were infested with rats, snakes, scorpions, uh, people went to the bathroom where they lived. The idea of running toilets didn't exist. So, you know, if you jailed someone, you have 20 people being held in a, in effectively a dungeon where they poop and eat and do everything in the same spot. So it would have been much more merciful if you gained someone 10 lashes than put them in prison. But the the idea of compassion and the relationship between al-aqil and al-maqul can come together to redefine what mercy means in a different age, where you know it might become much more merciful to put someone in prison than lash them ten lashes or twenty lashes or whatever, and it you know it, it is remarkable that. Again, we had philosophers like Sohrawardi and Mullah Sadra, who centuries ago, you know, thought, made sufficient progress philosophically to see this very clearly in the way they understood God's morality. But again, we, you know, the Islamic tradition is largely ignored. Um, if you actually knew uh, how many Muslims write on the great philosophers of Islam, um, the, the best scholars on Islamic philosophy are not Muslims. Um, that's that, just the reality. Um, and a lot of what Muslims write is just very formulaic, very descriptive, um, you know, I saw a recently a book by Frank Griffo, who is a professor at Yale, uh, a, a book upon, uh, writing about one century in, in the history of Islamic philosophy. I was just, it, you know, your heart breaks because I, I, I was re reading through it and saying, and, and it's very impressive work, I have to admit, I mean, really impressive. But then you'd think, well, how many Muslims can write a book like that? 
in the age we live in. And that, that's sad, it seems. Okay, um, this is um, back to the question about marriage and diversity. Um, what advice can the shift give for spouses that have different ethical and moral priorities? What if one spouse focuses on legalities over ethics and the other focuses on ethics over legalities? Thank you for your support. Yeah, you know, this is, this is where um, precisely at least the element of Mawadda I mean, starts um, coming into serious trouble. Uh, you, what, if you can't have Mawadda in your life, in other words, friendship, if you can't be a friend and, and friendship is often um, more meaningful than when we say love, because love sometimes can be just, um, you know, you, your heart reacts to, to, to someone with, with um, acceptance and you cherish that person uh, for better or for worse, and you. you but f friendship is is a very. It, it's uh, like it, it's building a, a synchronicity between the souls and between personalities that takes a lot of work and that is very special. Um, so if you can't have friendship, then at a minimum insist on compassion. That. Okay, we can't see eye to eye, but what you owe me and what I owe you is a level of empathy towards one another. Um, so a level of compassion, level of mercy between us that allows us to overlook what we disagree on and still be very decent to each other. If you can't have that, then, and, and unfortunately I know a lot of people who are married don't even have that, neither friendship nor compassion. Um, then it's a troubled relationship. And I'm not saying, you know, get a divorce uh, because you have, uh, the, the crux of the matter. Uh, you know, to be honest with you, when people come to me and say, I, I don't have friendship or, or compassion between me and my spouse, and there's no children, I say, okay, fine, get a divorce. When children are involved, then I have to think of the rights of the children. And that becomes a different ballgame. Because, you know, if, if children, you bring children to the world, it's not their fault. And the, they suffer the consequences of a broken family. And, it's, and again, it's not their fault. Um, and, and, but, you know, if, um, it's, it's um, you know, there are many situations where I felt that there's just, you know, I've talked to husbands and wives, and one of the, either the husband or the wife, depending, I just find unreachable. Like, whatever's in their head is in their head, and you can't change them. 
and for whatever reason, divorce is not possible or not desirable, you know, or they just don't want to get a divorce, whatever the reason. And I just had situations where I've advised usually the party that wants a closer relationship with Allah and I say, you know, marry God. Um, just focus all your attention and energy on your relationship with Allah. Um, because that's the that's the only salvation. That's the only consolation in in existence. Um, I I don't know. I'm gonna say this, although I I know I'm gonna get into you know I already get into a lot of trouble with Muslims. But uh, you know what's ethical is ethical. Uh, Muslim women should never surrender their body um, sexually just to perform a duty. That That's not part of the equation. And I find that leaves deep scars that, and bitterness that then comes to the surface in the relationship and prevents the formation of any form of friendship or companionship. Um, you know, anyone that tells you uh, the, the famous hadith attributed to the Prophet that, you know, if you say no to your spouse, angels curse you and stuff like that, uh, they're, they're, this is fabricated. It's completely without basis and, and it's unethical. If there's no compulsion in religion, there's no compulsion in sexual relations either. Okay, last question. I, I know we're, we're just about out of time, but I thought this was important. Um, Salam, I suffer from complex trauma and my life is miserable. I am afraid that if I ask God and he solves my problems that I might become arrogant and forget about God at the same time. Um, my life is too miserable, bad enough to basically commit suicide. I can't live like that, but this hardship makes me remember God a lot. I'm afraid I might forget about God if all my problems are solved. How do I not forget God? How do I keep God in my life even without hardships like mine? Um, no, don't stay in misery. Just don't, don't, that, um, it, I, I mean, I assure you, that even if God solves all your problems, if God knows that you knows that you God knows your heart, and if you start to drift away from God, I I can tell you with absolute confidence, God will send a hardship or two your way to bring you back. Um, so you know, it, don't worry about that. Um, and if, in fact, your problems are resolved, um, then you set, you know, it, you, it's as simple as if you, let's say right now, because in your hardship, you pray X amount of sunnah, you commit yourself, you promise yourself that regardless of what happens in your life, 
you're going to continue to pray X amount of sunnah, that you're not going to, that if things are better, you're not going to start praying less. Uh, and that usually will keep the reminder that, that I've committed myself because things were much worse. But if, listen, I mean, if you're talking about things are so miserable that you, you can't, um, no, you should pray for, of, to, to Allah to alleviate your hardship and your pain. Um, and the, that level of misery is, is not healthy in your relationship with Allah. I mean, Allah doesn't want us to come to Allah as broken human beings. Allah wants us to come and thrive in Allah. In, in other words, the best relationship with Allah is that when you are with Allah and you are happy because you are with Allah, not you are with Allah because you're so miserable that you need to cling on. There's nothing wrong with that, but it is not, it is not what we strive for. What we strive for is to be fully healthy, fully liberated, fully, fully ethical, fully moral, and with Allah. And that's the real strength of faith. You know, it's easy to be on the crashing plane and to beg and plead with God, and then say, oh, I'm close to God. No, it's, it's much better when you can actually arrive safely to your destiny and still remember God every step you take. Um, and that's just a matter of habit. A lot of times people who've led very miserable lives, um, they can't imagine how it could be that they have a relationship with God if they're not miserable. But if, you're, if you work on your Iman and your Iman is strong, you will have a relationship with God even if you're not miserable. It's just that the nature of that relationship will become different. Um, it just becomes different. You know, it just has a very different taste to it. But, you know, I, I, when you say something like that, I can't help but, you know, think, feel like I want to pray to Allah to, to alleviate your suffering. Uh, because no human being should feel like, you know, I'm to the point that I, I want to commit suicide. Um, that's not what, what Allah wants from us. Inshallah, may, may Allah make everything easier. Um, ya Rabbi, may Allah make everything easier upon you and upon all of us. Inshallah. Okay, well, thank you everyone for being with us for another um, wonderful session. Thank you, Sheikh, for this incredible surah. And may we all um, learn and internalize the lessons that you shared. And um, everyone should have a wonderful weekend, and hopefully, you can join us again on Tuesday. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. Good to see you.